G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of the Hunting Connection podcast. Today we have a repeat guest on, Dan from Eureka Tactical. How are you going, mate? I'm good. I'm really excited. A lot more uh, prepared for this one than last time. and This is going to be so fun. That's all right. Last time was a bit more of a casual one. This one um, is going to be full of information from yourself, a biologist, um, our own resident biologist for the show, so... Yep. Yeah, there's much more in my wheelhouse, and uh, now that I'm qualified and and all that, I feel a lot more you know confident and comfortable speaking on in biology. No, that's awesome. We definitely need a biologist's view on the hunting side of stuff. That's for sure. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree, and um, it's it's cool to you know have the hunting experience, have the shooting experience. And then also now have a degree in biology, in science. So, you know, I can use all three to make my claims to, you know, back up evidence as to why hunting's good. Yeah, exactly. Um, from those people that don't know Dan, he gets a um, mention in nearly every every podcast when we're talking about uh, deer control and um, feral animal control. Um, I always have a bit of a bit of a laugh just because he's got that biologist background and um, yeah, just, just have a good laugh, you know, a bit, yeah, a bit of friendly. completely misrepresent my views all the time, <laughs> you know, but that's okay. That's okay. No, um, we're, we're going to be clearing that all up, but still, I'm going to still have a laugh at Dan in future, future episodes to go. So <laughs> I talk about you behind your back all the time as well. So it's all good. That's all good. That's all good. <laughs> so again, this one's going to be a di- bit different to a, um, usual podcast we're going to try and focus on the educational side of stuff um from yeah everything environmental factors and populations and all sorts of stuff um, everything about deer in australia and the damage they do and uh control management all that so this episode was um planned out um dan did a awesome job Work, working out on talking points and how we'll go about it um, to be as professional as we can. Um, but it actually came about before the uh, National Deer Plan came out. So, yeah, it's just going to we'll go on our, our topics first. We might cover the National Deer Plan at the end and um, what Daniel's been been working on on that side of things. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, both... Both the, the notes for this and the plan took a lot of research, and um, uh, I'm really excited to talk about both because I love research and and I, I like deer. I really like the environment, um, so being able to talk about all three is pretty cool. And most hunters would love the environment as well and love deer and the tasty side effects of shooting deer, venison. Um, so, like I said. Those those of you that don't know Dan, he's um, 
a newly graduated biologist. He runs a company called Eureka Tactical, and he's also vice president for Firearm Owners United, which is our first and only sponsor. Yeah, do quite a lot when you you know say it like that. Yes, you do. Yeah. Lucky you're out of uni now, so you can focus on all the good stuff on um, supporting shooters and hunters around Australia. Yeah, start making money again. Hopefully that all comes with it. <laughs> Why helping us hunters out? Um, so give yourself a good introduction and um, what your past experiences are, where where your background of expertise are. and Right. So I've been hunting, I don't know, a long time now, well and truly over 10 years now. Um, and in, in Queensland, so it's mostly been pigs and rabbits and like foxes and all that because that's uh that's what we have in in queensland really there's a lot of deer but that's more behind you know properties that you need to pay to get on and all that um rather than you know the properties i have which are all free um and right out of school i got a job at a gun shop and i was still 17 which is pretty cool and, uh, you know, worked there for a long time and just met a lot of hunters and a lot of shooters. Got to hear their story. Um, that was super cool. Just like talking to lots of people and, and getting insights from people all around Australia about, you know, why they want that gun, what sort of hunting they do and all that. When I left that job, I got my firearm instructor license and taught the Queensland firearms uh, safety course for a while, like five years, I think maybe, maybe six, uh, whilst working security as well. And and again, that job, I trained like 30 people a week for five years on how to use firearms safe, safely. And that was really cool because, again, I got to hear people's stories, talk to people about why they want to get into shooting. Maybe they've already been hunting and shooting and stuff. They're just now getting their license or maybe they're now getting their Queensland license. And I mean, teaching people how to shoot is, is fantastic. Can't really, can't really beat that. But one thing I noticed talking to all these people and then listening to different hunting podcasts, maybe hunters on podcasts uh, like Australian hunters is Things didn't always really add up. I'd hear people talk about how maybe deer, maybe goats, even like in New Zealand, tar, et cetera, don't do damage to the Australian environment, uh, which now I'm not really hearing that too much, not too often. Most people say that they do do at least some damage. But years ago, people would say, like, oh, they don't do any damage, you know, they shouldn't try to call them. They shouldn't try and do anything. And and I'm like, man, that that doesn't add up, you know. That like these other people are saying they do do damage, and that's why we can actually go hunting in Australia, is because these invasives do damage to the environment. And the Australian government has been like, look, hunting is a genuine reason, and the things that you hunt are the invasives are the introduced animals because they do damage, and it doesn't add up. So I was like, look. We've got a pretty decent security job. We've got a pretty good gig uh, training people and teaching people how to shoot. Let's let's enroll into university because they were both very flexible. 
and just really find out what the truth is, you know, find out more information about what's going on. So I rolled into a university to do a Bachelor of Science, majoring in biology and minoring in wildlife ecology and environmental science. And, uh, yeah, I graduated last year. And how long is that course? It's three years. I, uh, it took me three and a half years because I there was a specific set of subjects I wanted to do, and they're not available all year round. Some subjects are only semester one, some are only semester two. So my last year was uh, spread out over a year and a half just so I could uh, get the exact subjects I wanted, which included, aside from normal biology like uh microbiology cells and bacteria included ecology and specifically uh invasion ecology so i did a whole subject about invasive species um invasive organisms how they work what makes something invasive like how do we classify it and um and everything about that was to do with australia as well not just mammals but maybe some insects maybe pathogens just everything to do with invasion ecology and so that was really cool. Quickly with the whole invasion ecology side of stuff and what makes stuff feral and introduced and stuff like that. Um, what's your definition of feral versus introduced versus like game species? Yeah, so that's, that's a really cool question and something I've actually answered recently with uh, another content creator who did a thing on foxes. So feral isn't really like a scientific term. It's more like a, it's more like slang. It's nomenclature. It's just an invasive animal that's doing a lot of, a lot of harm. But what we really need to focus on is what invasive means more than feral and introduced. An invasive species is... A, an organism that's been transported away from its natural habitat where it evolved into a brand new habitat um, through anthropogenic means. So by human-made means. So like a ship, a plane, um, someone just putting it in the back of their ute and transporting it somewhere. And that's really important because when it's outside of its area where it, where it evolved, it can either die really quickly because maybe the predators in that new area are, you know, way better than the predators in its natural area, or it can do a lot of damage because it's the super predator, or maybe there's no predators where it evolved with predators. And um, and that's what an invasive species is, is it proliferates, it, you know, reproduces, covers an area, and means the ecosystem is out of whack, is out of balance. So and with all of that, um, what's like the earliest of introduced species from around the world that you would know? Like, you know, the old the old ships would go around throwing pigs and goats onto small islands and stuff so that if they were ever shipwrecked on islands, um, yeah, so they'd be there. That's but, really interesting. I've not thought about that before, but it would probably have to be like a daddy long legs or something. 
I know you're you're probably hoping for something like in the like a you know macro fauna or omega fauna, um, but really it, it would have to be maybe like daddy long legs because they're everywhere. They're not meant to be everywhere, but they're everywhere. Um, mice were a huge one in all the ships. Um, My point where I was going with that was more um, the dingo side of stuff. So dingoes were introduced. Okay, so dingoes, yeah, that's that's a good example. So they came across approximately 5,000 years ago, right, from, you know, the island islands above us, so Indonesia um, region. Papua New Guinea and, then, and all of those. Yeah, Papua New Guinea and all that because uh, a while ago the water levels were a lot lower due to uh, lot, there's a lot more ice right around Antarctica and around the Arctic as well. And um, just how geology works, sea levels rise, sea levels dip. There was a time where it was dipped, or potentially through trading. There's a bit of conjecture around how dingoes actually got here. Some people say it's, it's due to a natural land bridge. Some people say it's due to trading. It's really hard to say. But around 5,000 years ago, dingoes entered North Queensland and uh, bred and outcompeted the thylacine and pushed the thylacine to mainland extinction. So it's hard to say if that's an invasive species due to anthropogenic means because we can't really say exactly how they got here. But if they were brought over here, if they're brought trade, over here, then, then yeah, they're definitely an invasive species. So the problem how- is that they pretty almost perfectly um, fills the niche of the thylacine, almost perfectly, which is really sad for the thylacine because that was such a cool animal. And then. Um, Definitely. A few hundred years ago, we wiped it out. Or a hundred years ago, we wiped it out. Um, According to some. <laughs> it might still be out there, and that's a whole whole other thing. Uh, if anyone's listened to Rogan's latest latest podcast with... Um, oh, I've just had a mind blank. What's his name? Forrest Galante. Yeah, Forrest Galante. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the dingo thing is, is really interesting, and it's hard to say. I... If you want to do something about dingoes, we can go about dingoes because there's so much interesting research about them and about their role in the ecosystem and whether they are good or, or bad. Yeah, but, the, the main thing that I was going for there was like if they were introduced via like trading memes brought over from the islands or even yeah. if they made their way here naturally five years ago, technically there's still an invasive species and so you're going to go on to say like (laughs) that means if they should if they are considered native that means there's a pathway for invasive species to be considered native somewhat so yeah like how long do you give a species being in a place to make it native so you look at pigs in say hawaii they've been there since the spanish sailors came through and tossed pigs out onto the island and goats you know they're a huge part of the hawaiian culture they're almost a native yeah. animal to the french french polynesians that landed in hawaii and called it home you know yeah so 
that's that's a great point and a really good in, um really good topic we can talk about uh ecologists would not consider the the pigs dropped off by polynesians and then um further sailors to be native and the reason is because they are still destroying the environment um the local fauna and flora has not evolved quickly enough to really counter the pig's destruction and there are islands it's like small island chains and stuff which have been completely devastated by pigs uh like that are just bare which were not previously bare because of pigs being dropped off there so it's like how long do you consider uh something native well sometimes you wouldn't there's a rat that's been in australia for like a hundred thousand years and that still some people say it's not native and that may have got gotten here oh that most likely did get here by normal means by a break in one of the uh biogeographical barriers and they were able to break across that and expand naturally and some people say that's not native that's been here a hundred thousand years or more so man it's hard to say it's hard to say the jacaranda you know uh you know queensland queenslanders love jacarandas right it's a it's a tree that flowers these really beautiful purple flowers um over the summer so that is originally from south america there's plenty here in in south australia as well the streets of the suburbia align with them yeah yeah and all all three queenslanders like that as well so they are an introduced species and they also almost one for one uh, fill the niche of a local tree called the flame tree. So the Queensland flame tree, the Illawarra flame tree, uh, which has these, these really nice red flowers. And I mean, they're mostly protected. Like if you chop down a jacaranda, people are going to be upset, but they're introduced and they outcompete um some native trees so it's really hard to say for sure so what's what would you say to the people that you know want to call deer the new natives in australia what would be your message to them i would say what do you know about deer i'll ask them what do you actually know that's not um you know, something that backs up your your point of view. Because a, a lot of hunters and a lot of shooters like to say that there's prop- left-wing propaganda all around and stuff, but it's like, uh, just in, in general. But, I mean, if you're only looking at things that back up your point of view, that's propaganda as well, right? Yeah, um, 100%. So I would say, like, what do you actually know? Uh have you ever read the research? Um, not like ABC's view on the research or someone else's interpretation, but the actual studies, the raw data, and considered the actual impact onto the environment that they have. And when I say the environment, I mean the environment, not like, you know, someone's fences and stuff. So I hear a lot of people be like, they have whataboutisms, right? Like, oh, what about this other thing? They damage fences. And it's like, bro, fences aren't the environment. Like, uh, fence posts, you know, I usually would. And 
wood comes from trees, yes, but it's like, um, and so I say, like, listen to this podcast and um, just just think about the actual damage they do. And understand, I'm not advocating for there to be helicopters going around everywhere and culling deer. I just want to put the the research out there and and show that they do do damage to the environment and it's a lot more than what I think hunters um accept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um and that's damaging. Side note to this conversation about it. Listening to Forrest and Rogan talk about um introducing mammoths and stuff back into yeah. Like the top of Russia, yes. Siberia and yeah. stuff like that. And Forrest is talking about, you know, re- replacing animals that haven't been there for a long time and their um their impact on the environment, stuff like that, you know, bringing back the woolly mammoth to Siberia and stuff like that. Um, with megafauna here in Australia that went extinct thousands of years ago, is there chances that some of these introduced species are just taking up roles that some of this extinct megafauna? Yeah, so that's something that gets brought up often by by hunters, basically as justification, and um, and that's been looked into, and not really, because what what was the megafauna here, and how long ago did it go extinct? Why did it go extinct? And what was their makeup? What was their biology? So we've got the short-faced kangaroo, which is my favorite, my favorite extinct megafauna. So this is a kangaroo. I don't know how to pronounce its Latin name because it's like wild. Yeah, no, we'll just get um, get rid of Latin names right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So it was. Uh, it can go go up to three meters tall, right? And up to two hundred and forty kilograms, bro. That's a unit. And it didn't have the snout that the you know kangaroos kind of have. It was short-faced kangaroo, so kind of looking like us, you know. Um, so can you imagine yourself. being the first Australians <laughs> to, to come over here by boat? They rock up on the beach, and there's this three-meter-tall kangaroo that's two hundred kilos, just like there. That's insane. And then the other thing about it is it could actually walk bipedally, so it didn't have to. Um, well, maybe. It didn't have to hop, and it didn't have to walk pentadactyly like they do now. It, they think that it could have moved both of its legs individually. So there was a three-meter-tall, 200-kilo person-looking thing that walked. Like this, rock, it is like this walking up onto the beach as you arrive. That's insane. Um, but uh, I, I, just, I just really like... Uh, Extinct megafauna. So Speaking could, of could extinct megafauna and stuff like that, um, you really... so there was this one called the Didoptrodon. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. It was this giant wombat, essentially, and that's the thing that some people use as an example of what maybe deer could be replacing. And its foraging habits aren't really the same, and its impact to the soil, which we will learn about during this podcast, uh, was completely different. So um, just with, like, you know, hooves versus, like, these big wide pads, um, it, it different impacts, way different impacts, which, as you've probably already noticed, I, I could 
sidetrack and go on about for a very long time. No, it's good. Uh, Sidetracks are good. Um, have you ever looked into like the limestone coast area of South Australia and all the caves down this way? There's a very interesting cave I do want to see, which has which potentially houses a subspecies of masked owl um, in the Nullarbor. That's not where you're going with that. No. But um, it's one of the only... There's this owl called the masked owl, and its its call is demonic. And um, there used to be reports of one living in this cave, and so hearing demonic calls in a cave would just be outstanding. Um that's but aside an- from that, no, and I don't know where you're going with that. That's another point for everyone listening. Dan is obsessed with owls. Like, They're very cool. Yeah, whether he watched too much um, Winnie the Pooh as a kid and related mostly to owl, you know, just being the, the grumpy one of the group. But uh, <laughs> I'm only grumpy when I talk to you. It's really weird. <laughs> and, uh, and other people that want deer to be classed as native um but where i was going with it was narrow court caves here in south australia so we have i'm actually surprised you don't know about it um so it's a massive limestone cave system that runs all through the southeast of south australia and it is filled with bones from pretty much every um megafauna animal that lived through the area and you can go cave diving in them because they've got these pristine limestone caverns that are underwater and people go diving. You can do cave exploring in them um, and, you know, they've got all bones on display of all the replica, like the short-faced kangaroo and the the giant wombat that you were talking about. So when you were talking about them, that's where my mind went straight away was the... Oh, uh, that's really cool. Yeah, look, that, that area um, of study, which one of my really good friends is getting into, and I just can't remember the name at the moment, um, starts with a P, doesn't matter, um, is, is not really my main interest, but uh, it's very cool when it comes up, you know, like when it comes up, I, I get gone to deep dives, but it's not, it's not my main interest, it, it's... I like things that are alive now. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome though. So if anyone hasn't hasn't gone through that part of southeast of South Australia, um, yeah, head over to Narracourt Caves, Mount Gambier. There's um a bunch of different caves you can go check out. There's um one on the I think it's the Swan River or whatever it is, right right on the edge of the South Australian Victoria border. That's a, another awesome cave system to go check out. But yeah, it's. It's it's so cool seeing all the different bones and stuff they've collected and the um, remade models of what they they believe the animals look like and they've got huge statues out the front of the Narracourt caves of that's cool. these um, extinct megafauna that Dan's talking about. So I highly know, recommend. This, whilst we're talking about megafauna, just because it's really cool and you like duck hunting, you know about the old megafauna duck? No, I do not. Okay, right. So this duck. This this is what they called it. This is what um, because it was insane when they found the fossils. It's called the Demon Duck of Doom. Like that's what they that's what they sort of decided to name it. Um, its Latin name is Barcornus, right? And it was this like two or three meter tall duck. That's nuts. Um, 
it was more like an emu, but the just how skeletons work and stuff. It they, it, it looks like a duck, um, but many meters tall and very heavy. It's uh, yeah, I don't know. It's insane. It, it's it's really cool. Um, Falcornus, or rather known as the Demon Duck of Doom. Ah, uh, what an animal! That's awesome. Anyway. Like I said, if if, uh, if we don't keep to these notes, I'm going to get sidetracked no, so it's, easily. It's, it's all good. That's that's what I like about podcast is the rabbit holes. Lucky we got your notes um to keep us on track. So you've gone to uni after working in the firearms industry and working with people. Um, you've enrolled into uni because you started hearing um mixed reports of what introduced animals are doing to the landscape one from the hunter's side two from the environmental side of stuff and you wanted to get to the bottom of it um what's some key takeaway points from unity from uni that you've you've come away with over the years oh man all right <laughs> we've got many key takeaways so something that i was surprised about is i went to a university that was in the middle of the city and a lot of classmates were you know inner city people and not once over those three and a half years did i have someone object to me hunting and shooting i actually had overwhelming interest in the things that i do um shooting and hunting which is so which is look it was not good on my part to go in, into university, you know, expecting that. But I was, you know, pretty political uh, in my early 20s and stuff. And, you know, just at that time, like, say, like, 2016 to 2019 was a highly political time. And, um, you know, in, in the shooting spaces and stuff, people were talking about those inner-city greeny lefties and stuff. They're everywhere in the unis, and it's all socialist and all that. And my time in uni, I just met so many people so interested in shooting, so interested in hunting. Um, like even like professors and my lecturers and stuff, almost all of them were either neutral about hunting or pro hunting. When I say neutral, it was just like, well, it's, it's cool and whatever, but it's like not my interest or whatever. But like my invasion ecology professor, it was like hunting's cool because it, it makes my job easier. If you guys are out there killing invasive species yourself, and um and stuff like that so yeah it that that was really a surprise to me so um, do you feel and we i know me and you have had this discussion before do you feel that that's just because you're in queensland and queensland's kind of that bogan country see i don't know because i haven't gone to universities in other states but Look, when when you and I compare our experiences with talking to like random people about hunting and shooting, and when I listen to your podcast, talking, you know, other people talking about their experiences, it's mostly negative. Um, whereas my experience is, you know, in the inner city, in the suburbs, everyone's either indifferent or pro. Um, so it might be a Queensland thing. I don't know. Maybe it's just a you thing. Uh, yeah, it's funny I because don't... I did 
conservation, land, land management um, for a brief bit at um, TAFE here in South Australia. And, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, this will be cool. I always wanted to become a park ranger rah, 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 when I was growing up. Right. So I got into conservation land management and study just not for me. I can't I can't keep track in a classroom. Um, you know, oh, there's a butterfly out the window. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, like Homer, Homer Simpson chasing squirrels out, out, of, about that. out of a, a tree. Dog. That's that's me. But you know, talking to the lecturer that that I had, and you know, just other other people in the class, they were some of them were like interested in hunting, but wouldn't do it. But majority of the people seemed to be getting into it were that greeny side of people and then um when i was doing charity fundraising for a conservation group in australia um you know standing out of the front of the unis asking these poor uni students to sign up for a coffee a week to to donate money to australian conservation foundation um and you know getting to chat to all these uni students that are coming straight out of the the university you know they're doing all these arts degrees and nurse nursing degrees and stuff like that and you know chatting to them and i'm here trying to get them to sign up to a conservation charity yeah (laughs) when they're like oh what'd you get up to on the weekend oh i went and shot deer or i was out hunting goats and they're like you know they seemed horrified most of the time but you know that could just be the i don't know hey like yeah like i said i mean from as my classmates to you know people working at the university i i really didn't come across anything negative to shooting or hunting like like when i say shooting i mean firearm ownership as well you know are people interested like ask me how to get a license you know to take them out shooting um you know if, to take hunting and how to get into that and it's it was it was such a surprise um so I I don't I I'm not sure why everyone else has this experience, but yeah, my experience was people are interested. Is and that, that could be just really because there's me, sorry, go on. could that be because there's just like six people at a, a Queensland university? <laughs> um, maybe, but and, and it might be just that thing that you know Queensland is a bit, you know, Brisbane only really became like a city city in the nineties after the um, World Trade Fair or something like that. Brisbane was considered a rural town until, like, 1988. Um, and and you, you can tell that. I used to work in an office. Um, well, I was an office worker. I was a security worker. And almost everyone I talked to would at least have, like, one cousin or one uncle or whoever who would go shoot rabbits or, or something like that. So, yeah, pretty much everyone in Brisbane just is connected to shooting in some way. So it, it might be just a Queensland thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, it's something that you, you brought up in the past is that, um, like I've said, like I've spoken to people and they didn't even realise that deer were in Australia and then I've explained to him, you know, there's six different species and there was a bunch more introduced into Australia and you're like everyone in Queensland seems to know that that It's deer. on that coat of arms. Yeah, exactly. 
But um, yeah, yeah just... Red Deer were a gift to like the mayor of Brisbane in the 1800s from Queen someone or other, or on behalf of the Queen. Um, yeah, it's it's on our coat of arms. So everyone in Queensland knows that there's deer here. Uh, but you know, we're just built different. <laughs> that you are. <laughs> so so you go on. No, go on. You're. Uh, you know, I was I was gonna say so. You know, other things about about uni and about being sidetracked by a butterfly. Um, last year, I was on a on, on a field trip that that went for a while on a property, right? And the property was actually it's a like two thousand acre working cattle farm um, that you know runs crops as well. It's it's owned and run by the person who works at, at university who's running the subject with soils. Um, so. We were working on doing soil sampling, and uh, I'm just like with a group of, of five people walking through Lantana and walking through the bush, and this place backs onto a national park, and I heard some rustling. I heard some some little rustling, and I heard uh, I can't recreate the sound, but uh, I heard a red deer. My microphone is Roar, roaring and, or just barking yeah, or like roaring. And I was like, oh, hello, what's going on here? And these, these other people were like, what was that? And I'm like, that is very interesting. And and so we'll, we'll continue working and we'll, we're walking up through this bush and there's a big red deer uh, just chilling there. And I was like, why? Why am I on a field trip right now digging up soil like, why don't I have a rifle with me right now? <laughs> uh, and the whole time, I'm like, oh, man, such a wasted opportunity. Uh, uh, 100%. The amount of yeah, deer... Yeah, it it's so cool. The amount of deer I've seen while work, working, like, just, you know, doing a delivery and there's deer sitting out in someone's paddock as you, you're driving up the driveway and it's like, God damn it. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was, uh, I don't know, it, it was very cool. And it was cool been with these because these people um actually one of them was actually from a farm from a farm that one of my family members owned after they moved out just a weird small world coincidence thing but anyway um uh, most of them hadn't seen deer before they know they're, they're there but just hadn't seen it hadn't heard it and uh, it, it was a good experience to be with them for that just just in that area and see that for their first time and um, as we're working, I was just sort of explained, you know, you know, they get hunted because they do damage, et cetera. And uh, I don't know, it's a cool experience. So what are some things that you've learned by doing your your bit, bits of work that you've done and then university as well? Something, I've learned so much. <laughs> you got to be more specific. Um, I've learned how to sell guns. I've learned how to dig up soil. Do you have something in mind? I was more more about going off of your notes about field work and um, okay, correcting yeah. assumptions and stuff that um, previous so, guests have made. An assumption that I hear all the time from you and your guests, the hunting community, and what I had before I went to university and learned more about you know biology as a career is that you know these guys don't go into the field that often. You know, they might go into the field a little bit, um, make some notes, and then make decisions based off of, you know, lack of field work, essentially. You know, uh, something you see in 
in hunting groups all the time, usually when there's like a news article posted, um, the news article vastly misinterpreting this, the research and the science, um, they'll be like, oh, those people are just in their offices. They don't know what the field is like. They don't know what the bush is like, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, man, was I wrong. And man, is everyone else wrong. So I have some friends who've been doing this for a while, right? Um, you know, maybe they graduated before me. Maybe I just met them through through other means. And um, man, these guys do some serious field work. Uh, a friend, I hope I can call them a friend, but someone I train with, um, graduated a few years ago, a different university uh, with an environmental science degree. And uh, her job is to go out into the field, private property and, and public owned lands and do and test test waterways and stuff. But her overall team is doing a lot of things. Maybe they're doing other research whilst they're all out there. And she explained to me her job is two weeks in the field straight and then two weeks back in the office analyzing the data. So that's not two weeks on, two weeks off. That's always working, but just two weeks in the field collecting data, two weeks back in the office when you've got, you know, internet, power, et cetera, um, you, you know, doing all the analysis and stuff. And, you know, they could be living in tents or they could be living in dongers. So that's, you know, if she, if she doesn't take time off, that's 26 weeks in the field per year. That's, that's quite a lot. Um, another friend of mine's an ecologist. And he does do fly-in, fly-out work. Um, you know, from Brisbane, he flies up to north, uh, far north Queensland to do ecology work. And, yeah, again, that's two weeks in the field in far north Queensland. Bro, that's he's been doing that over the summer. That's nuts. Um, Good fun. And then two weeks back back in Brisbane um, on his laptop and analyzing stuff. That's a lot of field time. That is an insane amount of field time. Uh, a friend of mine in the U.S., which we do have, we don't have as hardcore as what he did, but we have very similar things. He was studying kangaroo rats in the Arizona desert for two months straight. So what he said to me is, he lived in a tent for two months. He showered twice. That's he nice. slept in a bed twice <laughs> in that two month period, in that two month study period. Um, that's a lot of field time, bro. Um, that's. So, yeah, uh, an assumption that I had and some a lot of people have is that, you know, the guys doing the research aren't in the field and they don't know what things are actually like. But the guys doing the research and publishing studies, they are in the field. But do you also... News articles misinterpret their research and use it for, you know, their own purposes or whatever. But the people actually doing the studies, they, they're in the field. Do you feel that they go in looking at... St- stuff different as well compared to what hunters so hunters who spend a lot of time in the bush they're seeing the damage that some of these invasive animals are doing but we're looking for sign trails markings all of that stuff to hunt them do you feel that um the people who are spending time in the field stud like studying for biology reasons they're looking at stuff completely different that's that's something really interesting um and okay so when you when you try to find research on invasive species in australia um one name comes up so often especially do with deer especially do with uh hunting 
Um, his name's David. Because uh, I, I don't know him or anything like that, so I'm not going to say his full name, but it's David, and it comes up very often. When you publish a study, you've got to uh, announce any conflicts of interest or anything like that. Every single time he does a study on invasive species or effectiveness on shooting invasive species, which we'll go into a bit later, his conflict of interest is that he has a New South Wales R license and is an SSAA member and an active hunter. So the one of the, the main names, and he's got uh, like 150 publications on invasive species in, in Australia. So one of the main people studying invasive species, or invasive mammals at least, is a hunter, which is really interesting. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, it's you're doing different things, right? Um, you're going out for different purposes. If you're doing anything for a specific purpose, you're trying to do that specific thing, if that makes sense. So if you're looking for deer to hunt them, yeah, you're you're looking for signs. If you're trying to figure out the damage that deer do, you're looking for the deer, um, uh, but the experimental design is set up to really narrow down exactly what the deer is doing on a specific species, on soil, on, you know, something to really figure out, it's like, okay, is this actually happening? Is it not happening? Uh, what's the effects? And when we talk about plants, when we talk about that, I'll go over what the experimental designs are and, you know, you know, show you sort of, they do know what they're talking about. Um, and I think it's really important if people are going to, make commentary in this space, they should probably really try and look up the research and read the research them itself rather than interpretations of the research by, you know, uh, specific councils which may have agendas, you know, committees which may have agendas, um, and, and, and see that the research itself is not bad. It's not saying anything bad. It's how certain people are using the research and, uh, and we can use the research to justify recreational hunting um, as well. As with your your um, national deer plan um, yeah. write-up that you just done. Exactly, exactly. So do you feel that if, you know, you'd say majority, majority of these biologists going out and looking to, into the impact of introduced species are looking at it one way but if you um say you sent them out with a hunter who doesn't have the biology side of study so that the hunter's picking up on stuff that the biologist isn't picking up on and the biologist is teaching and showing the hunter that the stuff that he isn't picking up on when he's out do you think that would have a um like a different outcome for the hunting community on how we look at um, when scientists go out in the field. Like, cause a lot of Australian hunters feel like the scientists and biologists and all of that going out into the field are just pushing a government agenda to wipe out all invasive species and get rid of hunting. So people that can't own guns and stuff like that. So do you reckon if we, had something like a program like that where you know 
the hunters and biologists are working side by side. Look, I think that's a that's a very interesting thing. Um, and and so again, something to to understand is the research itself is not political. The research itself is not trying to say, hey, we need to kill we need to kill deer therefore we need to try and find a reason why um and then we need to you know get rid of guns um the, the research isn't out there is the researchers aren't trying to find a conclusion right they don't have a predetermined conclusion so the people like I said, the people doing the actual research themselves might be hunters might be you know, people just care about the environment. But research by nature doesn't have a political bias, at least not environmental science, in my opinion. Um, maybe research to do with uh, medical stuff and health, maybe. Uh, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. And um, But, you know, this sort of science has to be repeatable and um, held up to scrutiny. Right. So if someone comes up with the conclusion and other people go out and do the same methods and don't reach the same conclusion, don't get the same results, that first bit of research is like looked at really heavily and it's like, hey, what's the go with this? So it's not so much the biologists and the researchers that we need to sort of be wary of. It's the who's using this research, why they um, use it in a certain way. I think it'd be super cool. Uh, you know, like if you went out with some researchers, you might be able to find the deer easier and help them with their research. And um, if if there's any hunters who are open-minded and don't have pre-made conclusions... I think it'd be a really interesting, like what the conversation that's about to happen about this topic, I think would be really enlightening just to say, look, deer in Australia are doing damage. Here's how they're doing damage. And we can show you how they're doing damage. Um, and look, come to your own conclusion as to what should happen. You know, I, I really love Australia. I really love the Australian environment. Um, all of our animals and i you know look i'll say now like i do prioritize those over the invasive species but hunting is so freaking cool and um as humans we need hunting so we definitely do need recreational hunting we do need to be able to have an opportunity to fill our freezers with meat that we've gained gathered ourselves so when we're talking about you know, removing deer. We can use the research to show, look, it should be hunters who are doing this, not um, not a team of helicopters uh, doing it. And there's actually extra reasons why, aside from this personal philosophy, which we'll definitely go into um, during this, as to why it needs to be recreational hunters who are the main tool of um, of, of killing deer and removing their numbers as opposed to to helicopters and stuff. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question. I have a habit of 
kind of interpreting things my own way and then going off. But as we all do, uh, if it if it if you like that question and you feel I didn't answer it, then like to anyone listening, just DM me, and then <laughs> I'll go on another sidetrack <laughs> when I talk to you. So it's not going to help. Uh, yeah, it's it's a hard one because you know. As hunters, we feel as we're always under attack, you know. I There's the, I've, as I've spoken about many times on this podcast, I have the internal struggle of the conservation side that, you know, I grew up reading all these conservation books and introduced species books and watching Steve Irwin go on about invasive species and then from me hunting deer and then forming this complete love with deer and, you know, wouldn't be who I am today without, without them, um, as many hunters in Australia feel. So, you know, all these talks of the media and government going, we need to eradicate, we need to eradicate. It doesn't sit well with 98% of the hunters. And I, I appreciate that. And I acknowledge that, you know, because, um, hunting so important, but on that, and I've just noticed we've been talking for an hour and 10 minutes and haven't even started. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to post you two questions, not really questions for you to actually answer, but just think about. So one, what do you know about the damage deer do to the Australian environment now? When I say the environment, I mean the environment, not to agriculture, um, not to infrastructure, but to the environment. And the second one is, do we, as European Australians and anyone else who's listening, have an inherent right to hunt deer in Australia? So I'm not asking, do we have an inherent right to hunt? But do we have an inherent right to hunt deer in Australia? And, uh, I think that's going to come down to personal beliefs. I don't think there's a, a correct answer. I don't think there's a wrong answer. Actually, the internet, there might be wrong answers. <laughs> um, but I think that's something really important to think about. I think about that all the time, like all the time. Um, do we have an, and I think about it like so many other things as well. Like, do we have an inherent right for like so many things, but specifically to this podcast, to hunt deer in Australia? It's, and, uh, yeah. it's definitely a tough subject, especially with this national deer plan that's come out in the the wake of us organising this podcast. You know, we've been discussing whether we should, you know, add more to this. You know, like you said, we're already an hour into this and we've barely touched on... Well, we haven't even started. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with that, I think we should start. So like I said, this is all written and research before I read the National Deer, the National Feral Deer Action Plan and uh, submitted my response. So uh, I have some thoughts on that plan and I have thoughts on why recreational hunting wasn't included and that's really important and it's going to um, be reflected in this podcast. Um, but I think we should probably start. And um, so how, how this is going to go, um, I know this is your podcast. I'm just taking over now. Go on. So um, I've I've written down, well, first there's some questions by people and they're going to be answered me directly. I, I wrote it down the answers 
So I'm not going to get sidetracked uh, when answering <laughs> those. So we're going to answer some questions. And then there's a list of impacts that I've written down, like impacts on plants, um, habitat engineering, predator impacts, etc. And we're going to go topic by topic on what, how deer affect Australian plants, how deer affect the habitat, um, what they do to the soil by topic. And I'm going to talk about the research, like what the research actually says. Then I'm going to um, maybe give my thoughts. And throughout that, I guess Zach is going to um, make some smart-ass comments. And just help with that. Now, um, by the time this gets published, I'm going to have a like read-along thing on Eureka Tactical's website. So, you know, from the point when we actually start, you can read along um, the research because I don't want to be that person who's like, research from this person titled uh, Dear Impacts on a Specific Plant says this and this. Um, that's all going to be in the read-along. So this is going to be a very generalized interpretation of the overall research on each topic. And then if you want the references, if you want the citations to read yourself, um, that's going to be on on my website. Yeah, it's it's definitely something you're going to, as you're listening, you want to keep your emotions out of it. Like, I like that you said that. Hey, I'm a, I'm a very emotional person on this subject, and I'll be the first to admit that, you know. When it comes to hunting, when it comes to deer, when it comes to all of this stuff, I, I get very emotional. I get very defensive. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that, um, you know, it's it's my passion. It's my love. It's it's my lifestyle. You know, I would have met all these amazing people if it wasn't for it. You know, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for these things. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a shame. Maybe we should have <laughs> Well, I, I still think you're an undercover vegan, you know, in, infiltrating oh, yeah. the, the hunting yeah, shooting right. world, you know. <laughs> yeah, I just spent like a week straight researching and uh, writing a submission to defend hunting because I'm a vegan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you've got your ulterior motives, I'm guessing. Nah, all jokes aside, all jokes aside. Um, So the questions you put out, to people in some of the Facebook groups and Instagram, um, the Facebook groups that I run and, yeah, your Instagram and whoever else shared it. So first we got um, Dragon T. He wants to know about the plants deer eat, the habitat, the real damage they do based on science, evidence, and not left-wing propaganda, how effective government control has been compared to the public control and compare compare the efforts of environmental damage to housing developments forestry green greeneries yeah every, everything yeah um so the first that first point on plants is going to be the first topic that we cover um so they definitely do do damage to plants and the habitat and the environment i'm really going to cover that and and I really hope I've already spelled out that none of this is going to be left-wing propaganda. Um, something I want to be really clear on is everything I say is going to be, up until when we talk about the deer plan, it's apolitical, I mean, very neutral. Um, and I'm going to try and be as objective as possible when, uh, well, I guess when I wrote this, I was trying to be as objective as possible, just the research. Um, and, you know, to build on your point, look, 
some of this might contradict some long-held beliefs about the damage they actually do. And I think that's going to be a, a good opportunity for, you know, to learn and to grow and to understand I'm not putting this out there to eradicate deer or to ban guns or anything. Um, trust me, I, I've i made, like, like I said, before I was even 18, I was in the shooting industry. Um, my entire income has been based on guns being legal. I need them to be legal for me to eat. <laughs> um, so I definitely don't want them banned. Um, and and I, I've been attacked for I'll, like just for saying deer do damage. I've had people tell me that you know I'm an anti gunner, and that's just that's definitely not the case. Um, and if you think so, I have done more for gun laws than you have. <laughs> um, now the rest. So he, he's saying that you know compare the effects, um, the environmental damage to like housing developments, forestry, so uh, the greens, apples, phones, and vegan sourced um, goods and stuff. So. I don't really know what like Apple phones and deer have in common, so I, I can't answer that. Um, but housing and development and industry development and all that is a social political issue. Um, there's a lot of economics to do with that, and um, I'm not really qualified to talk about that. And look, bulldozers do a lot of damage to the environment. Absolutely, they they do a lot of damage. Um, but just because they do damage doesn't mean deer don't do damage, right? And that sort of talk, whataboutisms, is a deflection. You see it all the time in um, like community Facebook groups where someone's like, hey, make sure you keep your cats inside. And people will be like, my cat doesn't do damage. Like, what about the bulldozers and that new development and stuff? It's like, look, yeah, your cat still kills lizards whilst that bulldozer knocks down trees. Um, so I, I don't want to go into whataboutisms, the, uh, ever expanding urban, um, development is something to talk to a, someone who's into politics and economics, not, not to me. So another question, just Andrew H talking about. Eureka Tactical. Yep. Um, you know, sh- as we'll share. I sold him. He, he didn't want a white shirt. I yep. sold him a green shirt. Yep. <laughs> Sorted. So if um, anyone hasn't gone over and checked out Eureka Tactical's website, check it out. I'm currently wearing the the hunter-gatherer fishing, fishing shirt. It's got yep. Dan's outline with a fishing rod on it from... From a yeah monkey all the way up the evolutionary yep. tra- train monkey to me it's, it's a short trip <laughs> and then you're you're rocking the um, hunt deer eat venison shirt um, yep. which I feel like I helped you out on on designing some you of did. them did <laughs> um, so then jumping from there you got Cody Gear on previous Cody. guest. Um, you know, curious about the history and story of hog deer and how we ended up with the current ballot system, which I went over on my last podcast as we're talking, but this would be two episodes ago with Barry Howlett. Um, yeah. Um, so after after he put that question out there, you sent me a message like an hour later, just by coincidence, been like, hey, I'm, I'm having Barry on about hog deer and, and stuff. I was like, well... Damn, that's good, but damn. Um, <laughs> so, so really, you've covered, and 
Um, I had notes about this really interesting research about their DNA, but you, you already talked to Barry about that. So just listen to Zach's podcast with Barry, Cody, and uh, yeah. And when you're listening to this episode, Cody, I'm currently sitting on Snake Island in my stand, or possibly I've even smoked a hog deer by now, you know, it, when this episode is released. Congratulations the- to Cody for <laughs> yesterday for us, but like four weeks ago when this comes out. Yes, yes. Congratulations to the um, the birth of your daughter. Um, exciting, exciting times, but... Yeah, when this episode releases, I'll be yeah, hopefully tagged out of a uh, hog deer, but that's uh, yeah. <laughs> that's only the Tuesday, so I'd only been hunting for a day and a half by then. Um, moving on, Lacan from Fill the Freezer from a few episodes ago wants to talk about control versus eradication. So him and I had the conversation towards the end of our podcast about how he would like a control version versus eradication, you know, um, throughout Australia and New Zealand. Um, What's your take on all of that? Yeah, so him and I have been talking since and, um, and, and I asked him to expand on what he means because, like, look, eradication is a form of control, right? Just um, and and he really wanted a a tracked hunting system, so you know, have people go in and you know have tags, make sure we can look at the populations that way, um, and also just wanting hunters more included in the control methods. And look, just such a great coincidence. Not, I shouldn't say great, but just such a coincidence that. As we we're doing all this, the research for this and writing this, the National Feral Deer Action Plan came out and we started reading, reading about that. So um, we are going to talk about control, eradication, um, what the what the plan means, and, uh, and and I guess our thoughts and based, well, my thoughts are based on very heavy research um, on what what they should be. So we are going to talk about that. Um, but I just want to say, look, eradication is a form of control. So, but we're, we're going to talk about a better system. Yeah, hundred percent. I did a lot of research. Yes, you have. Um, so the first impacts to talk about plants. Tell me about how deer impact Australian plants and plant communities. Yeah. So, all right, we're finally getting into it after an hour and twenty-two minutes. That's how long we've been on. We've only been this. We're about an hour six into the podcast now. So right. Um, so first, uh, I need to go over how these things are studied because that's really important to understand how these conclusions are, are made. So there's enclosure and exclosure studies. So what they are are large areas, up to thousands of acres, are cordoned off. So where where they find where deer are, areas are cordoned off with exclusion fencing, and this could be, in it for a single study, maybe four plots, and they know there are deer in these plots, and they might eradicate all the deer in that plot, right? And so then in the second plot where the deer are, um, it's the same trees, it's the same ecosystem, same plants, just there's deer and no deer, right? Does that make sense? Yep. Um, and that's done for months at a time, like months at a time with frequent checks they might be living out there um 
that might be going out every week to do analysis. And um, then they just compare the two. So what did the studies actually show? Very important. So deer will defoliate. Um, that means they like, take all the leaves off. Uh, they'll strip bark and break stems, which leads to a, a large reduction in the plant's biomass at the lower level of the like forestry, which is the shrub layer. So you've got multiple layers in a forest. So at the shrub layer, yeah, they defoliate, strip bark, um, and break stems. So this will then impede vertical growth of any new growth. So if there's um, like a new tree sprout sprouting, and it's just been, or the the leaves are being taken off, it's not going it's not going to get the energy to to grow to grow into a big strong tree. Uh, if Sorry. trees can't grow, that changes the ecology of an area. Just on that, um, you know, in say my local hunting areas, you know, you're looking at the Adelaide Hills. So we've had a few big fires come through over the past eight years. So there's lots of new regrowth of vegetation. So the deer are rab- rubbing on lots of saplings and stuff, but yep. majority of these trees are competing to grow through there. So more than half of the trees won't reach their mature stage anyway. Right. And so then, because now there's this extra thing that's damaging them, there's going to be even less. Do you feel that uh, though? Because it's, yes, they're, they're rubbing, absolutely. rubbing certain saplings and then well, there's, rubbing there's is a different issue. There's less, well, there's stripping, rub, rubbing, stripping. It's the same it's the same thing where, you know, they're taking out more of the competitive growth. So these, there's less competitive for the trees to grow and there's more overall yeah. growth. So, but what if it was, what if it was a species that um, actually required simultaneous growth? Because neither of us are experts on trees in your specific area, right? Definitely not. Did my microphone just... No, um, so, you know, making those comments without really understanding the exact tree ecology and biology, man, it's really hard to say. It's, it's um, like, what if, yeah, what if those trees needed each other for simultaneous growth? Um, there, there might be a commensal relationship between one growing and the other growing. Because uh, there's a great book called The Hidden Lives of Trees, where it shows a lot of trees growing simultaneously actually um, transfer nutrients, right? Especially if they're the same species through the mycelium between them. But that's a that's a whole whole another subject matter. Um, so yeah, because these trees haven't evolved with deer eating them, it's really impacting the vertical growth. And so then further exclosure studies show that this, uh, the presence of deer can reduce overall vegetation cover. Um, they can halt tree regeneration, like we just said, sapling growth, and overall plant biomass, right? So the, the total mass of plant material in a certain area. Um, and then this reduces biodiversity of plant species. So um, a really interesting study... Uh, it, was, it was a very small study of rooster deer indicate they reduce understory in the forestry. So understory is above the shrub layer, but below 
well below the canopy layer, um, depending on the, the actual forest itself. So just the presence of them with how they eat um, can reduce, um, yeah, the, the understory of a forest system. So why is this stuff so hard to spot? Yeah, so um, a, a saying that I have, I didn't make up, I don't know where I got this, which gets in, misinterpreted all the time, especially by you, is you don't know what you don't know. So I'm not saying that you don't know something. I'm saying like there, there's things out there that you don't even know you don't know, right? So like I said, if you aren't a tree expert, if you aren't an expert in that local ecology, then it might just seem like those trees aren't meant to have leaves on at that layer. But, you know, once you remove the deer and you compare trees to an area where there's, there's no deer compared to where they are of the same species, then it's like, Oh, look, hang on. There, there actually is meant to be leaves at this layer. Um, there's meant to be foliage. Um, but because there's deer here, there, there isn't. But like, if your experience is just in areas where there are deer, um, and again, like you're not an expert, then it just looks normal to you, and um, and and so and so that's why it's really really hard to spot, because yeah, I guess if you're not an expert, you're not an expert. Do their eating habits have other effects on? Yeah, so plants? something that's really interesting is samba deer. And, and hog deer, but hog deer have, have a smaller range. But samba deer especially have been really studied, heavily studied. Um, they have a really broad diet, right? So they can eat something, they can eat a seed of something, and then because they can travel really far, they poop out that seed and then it plants. Now, that is how normal um, – that, that's a normal way how trees reproduce. Um our, our native species do that as well. But two things. One, Australia has a lot of invasive plants, so they could be um, translocating plant uh, invasive plants. And a samba deer travels a lot further than, say, like a dunart or a bandicoot, an antichinus. You know what I mean? But you, I understand what you're saying, but then you put in native bird species that eat seeds of these introduced plants... And, then and that's also a massive problem. They're flying them out. Like, you look at down here, I'm not sure how much you know about it. Um, I've always referred to it as mistletoe, um, but it's like an invasive parasite plant that um, grows on the gum trees down here and just takes over and sucks the... Do you know this one? Yes. ...the nutrients out of the, the local gums. But that's, yeah. that's transported by birds... In their, yeah. their droppings, and, they'll, they'll eat. And so the, the, I guess the point is, is like I said before, it's an extra factor that's been included because of anthropogenic beans. So the invasive plants, also terrible, um, and and they spread by a lot of means, and one of them is by an introduced species. So it's just an extra bit of thing that they can do. But also native species can become invasive, right? So... Some plants are just native to like a hundred meter radius. Yeah, that's a bit of exaggeration, but you know, there's local area plants, and a, a deer might eat that plant, travel 
very far and then plant it somewhere else. And it's like, well, it's still a native species. It's like, well, it's like it's not. Um, because native doesn't just mean native to the island of Australia. It also just means to a very local biogeographic region. And Barry and I covered this a little bit last week when we were talking about the hog deer introductions and, you know, they were introducing kangaroos and wombats into areas after yeah. they had introduced wombats into air, uh, sorry, hog deer into areas where they'd never had wombats or kangaroos as far as we know. And then you were talking about, oh, sorry, there was also, yeah, talks about koalas. And then you and I were speaking. What were you talking about in yeah, Western Australia? So, Western Australia, um, can- uh, kookaburras aren't native to like the Perth region of Western Australia. And so, sometime in the 1900s, people brought kookaburras over to to that area and they are destroying the ecosystem um, because they're out-competing the native kingfishers. Kookaburras are carnivores. They will mess things up. They will, they're killing birds, um, out-competing birds, and the reptiles, because the reptiles there haven't evolved to, um, to defend against kookaburras, right? So, yeah, just within Australia, a very iconic Australian species, the kookaburra, is invasive to another part. And um, this is how, how much, how effective it can be. So, yeah, something from like India coming here uh, compounds the, the effects. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, aside from eating them, what else are they doing to plants that is negative? Yeah, um, so something that, that you're already interested in and uh, in fact a lot of hunters acknowledge but not to the extent is antler rubbing. So as a deer grows its antlers, um, I think most people who are listening are hunters so they know deer grow antlers and then um, due to various reasons due to the growth, they rub them on trees. I'm right? so glad you said antlers and not horns. I don't have to jump through the camera and slap you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty big distinction. Um, it's, a, it's a big. There's a big difference between uh, antlers and horns. Um, so, uh, uh, so this when you when you rub a tree uh, around its entire uh, circumference, there's known as uh, girdling or ring barking, right? And this is a, a very. It's not just deer who do this. Like this is a way of of killing a, a tree. You put a chain around the tree. Um, you go back and forth and it, it can kill it. How it kills it is it digs through the bark layer into the cambium. And then uh, I forgot what the like the veins are called. Phloem and xylem, I think. Like, I can't remember exactly. Um, it can cut off the essentially the veins of a tree. So it can't transport nutrients and water up and down the, the stems, the trunk, etc. So it, it kills the tree. Now, this uh, has been studied. And yeah, it they kill a lot of saplings this way, and they are very much damaging larger trees of certain species, which I don't know how to pronounce. Um, S Z Y G U I M or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, but there was a study that went into the effects of how some large trees aren't affected, but and um, like you, you might have a species of tree. And when it's an adult and it gets antler rubs, it's not really affected. But as a sapling, it's affected. Other ones, 
it's a reverse. Saplings don't really get affected by antler rubbing, but the large ones do, like the adult trees do. And it's down to a species by species level. And um, I know it's, it's really interesting, but you're talking to you and, and other hunters uh, minimize the effects. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But it's also the species we chase, you know. I don't see fallow deer rubbing on mature trees too much, you know. There might be a few tine marks here and there, but nothing to the extent of some of the photos that you see up in Queensland with chittle and rooster deer. So, you know, it, you're seeing the effects of your local area and not like the... Australia-wide effects of different species that you aren't hunting as well. So that's something else yeah. to take into consideration when talking about it as well. You know, each, you know, we've got, what is it, four species from the Indian continent and then two from the European continent. So, yep, yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's definitely something to remember and... I've I've done a lot of research into this, but the the deer plan mentioned that they're damaging scar trees, which look does make sense because if they're killing a tree, and it happens to be a scar tree, then it's damaging that. But uh, it's apparently it's a noted effect, and that's you know culturally important. And yeah, so that's something to consider as well. That's a weird one for me. Um, like it's okay for a human to scar the tree but if a deer comes right. along and then scars the same tree it's a it's an issue that's just my personal take on it you know you and i have chatted about this and i've had a bit of a laugh about it you know like it's it's okay for one one mammal to come through and scar it and cut a shield out of it or cut a canoe out of it and you know possibly killing killing the tree in the meantime where another mammal comes along and rubs it or, you know, you've got cockatoos that scar trees and stuff like that and it's somewhat okay and you can't control the native species that do the damage, but as soon as it's an introduced species like deer, it's a big no-no. Well, so, like, on that, you know, ecosystems evolve over millions of years. So, yeah, cockatoos do damage trees. They don't ring bark and they don't you know usually break down to the cambium uh layer um but when talking about like a native species killing a tree that native species have been killing that tree for hundreds of thousands or millions of years and so that tree has developed a reproductive system that counters that um by you know producing more or whatever so it's also not for the population that these native species are in most of these native species are in greater populations than European settlement. So these native tree species, they're in less populations, so they're struggling to survive anyway Yeah. as well. So yes, the deer do the damage, but because we've got a shit way of controlling native species because they're quote-unquote native even though they're in greater numbers than pre-European settlement. Um, not all. Not all. I did not say all, but, you know, kangaroos 100% are, depending where you are in Australia. Yeah. You know, cockatoos are. It's just more water, more feed than there ever has been and more consistent water and feed across the landscape. Yeah, so, so yeah, the, the antler, the rubbing thing is... 
you know, you really got to consider the, the local ecosystem. Yeah, 100%. So, what's their diet compared to native animals? Is there any competition? Yeah. So, um, there, as herbivores, there's a lot of dietary overlap. And so, this has, a, this has an actual name in biology called interspecific competition. And um, now, there's, it's been proven that there is a risk for this. But in times of high feed, it hasn't really been shown that they eat so much that kangaroos don't have access. However, this is really important research when it comes to times of drought that they, the presence of deer might be really impacting kangaroo population numbers or wombat population numbers because of the interspe- interspecific competition with their diet. Um, so at the moment, it's rained the entire past year. There's probably <laughs> enough feed where it's not going to matter. But, yeah, definitely in times of drought, this is going to become a, a, it's a really important consideration. So more deer equals less kangaroos. I, I could live with that. <laughs> less wombats, though. Wombats are cool. I like wombats. Mm, you've never never been hunting samba deer in wombat country those things sound like a freight train and just the holes everywhere and <laughs> yeah but they're cool they are they are they do have their own environmental impacts and farming land impacts as well especially in some of the riverland here in south australia but that's a totally different discussion <laughs> yeah so what does this all mean for the environment? What's the actual damage done? Um, it's a good question. So, yeah, we need to go back to the understanding that ecosystems evolved over a very long time, uh, such a long time that I think a lot of people don't really comprehend how long, how long millions of years is, you know, especially when considering X animal is the new native when we're considering they've been here 200 years at best and the ecosystem is millions of years old. Um, It's barely like a raindrop in the stream of time. It doesn't, it's nothing. Um, So in these millions of years, these plants have formed relationships with other plants, um, with the bacteria in the soil and the animals in that area. Um, and this has a name. These are called biological interactions and are broadly put under two separate categories, short-term interactions and long-term interactions. So your short-term interactions are defined by singular once-off interaction, and they're really strong drivers of something called co-evolution. Um, so co-evolution is, is two species, two or more species evolving with each other. So these are predation where one organism kills and uh, or maybe eats another organism, right? Pollination, where a pollinator will transfer pollen from a male plant to a female plant, and usually they get rewarded in nectar, right? And, and you know, bees like nectar, right? Um, then we've got seed dispersal, which we've just talked about, where um, seeds are transported away from parent plant and then, you know, disposed of by the animal in some way or another, and, and it grows again in a new area. Now, our long-term interactions are known as symbiosis, okay? Very important. And this has many types of relationships within it. So mutualism, where 
two or more species get a net benefit. So, you know, just, just two interactions with each other um, and they both benefit. Commensalism, where one species gets a benefit and the other isn't harmed, but it, it doesn't benefit at all. And then there's, um, what, what's the last one? Para, uh, para, parasitic relationships, where one benefits and the other is actually harmed. So a parasite, right? Then I mean, I don't know how to pronounce it properly because I can't pronounce every single word. But aminosalism, where organisms literally just inflict harm on each other and are in competition for no benefit. And then there's this general competition where overall fitness. Now, fitness in terms of biology isn't like necessarily a stronger animal, but more successful in its reproduction. Um, competition is, is overall fitness is lowered by the presence of another organism. So just by another organism being present, your reproductive success is lowered. And that could be for a number of reasons. So the natural environment has evolved over millions of years to form each of these relationships. And the population ecology is determined by these interactions. So this is where balance that's, that's what balance refers to. And you know I hate the word balance because it's become a buzzword in, <laughs> uh, in these circles. And that's the natural state of the environment, you know, before anthropogenic um, interactions, so people interactions, people, our invasive species interactions. Um, the unaccounted for killing of trees, the higher rate of predation upon grasses, and the further spread of plants interrupt these interactions and causes an imbalance. So this can lead to population declines of certain species and might um, uh, lead to population increases in other species, which then affects populations of native animals that live there. This then can affect the bacteria in the soil and the rate of nitrogen sequestration, right? So how much nitrogen gets captured, how much carbon dioxide gets captured and then put into the soil um, because uh, there's different plants and different bacteria there now, right? Um, and then the overall decomposition uh, decomposition rate of decaying plant material gets affected because it's not in balance. The um, reduction of rate of decomposing of decaying plant material can then increase the risk of fire, right? So if if the right bacteria isn't there and the right uh, microorganisms aren't there to um decompose all the leaf litter and the dead grasses that might be present then there's a higher than natural risk of fire and that's already such a higher risk in australia so they might be just the because of deer being here there might there's an increased uh, risk of fire just because of the imbalance they've caused due to the plant communities now um we what we didn't cover was that these animals fight and when they fight, they dig up ground and they have bare soil, okay? And so having bare soil can lead to higher rates of compaction and that affects the water absorption into the ground. Um, it increases light penetration, which that means bacteria that really benefit from that but it might be otherwise harmful, uh, you know, reproduce at a much higher rate. And that could be devastating for the rest of the environment so the bare ground with less vegetation has a higher risk of soil erosion 
soil erosion is a massive issue worldwide. Um, high rates of soil erosion means a less stable area and a higher chance of landslide and more chance of pollution into the waterways. And yeah, that, those are all pretty bad things. Um, just just by this this imbalance. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, it's funny you talking about where deer leave bare soil from when they're setting up scrapes and stuff like that. You know, yeah. they're putting beds out. It's the funny thing about it. After they've finished using the scrapes in the rut raw, I quite often see emus nesting in these scrapes yeah. on one of the properties in particular I hunt on. Um, you know, so they're not having to dig out their own own nest. So these em- emus are reproducing in these in these scrapes, and also kangaroos using these scrapes as beds because it's all cleared out and nice. And yeah, um, but you know that that patch um, can be killing the grasses and the ferns in that area. Um, and then you know not every area has an emu that. Likes it to bed there, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's just know, something I've picked up in my my. It's, local. it's very interesting though. That's really cool. And yeah, like I like that a lot. <laughs> I've you know, got you've to got consider all these other effects that, that might be happening as well. Yeah, like there's there has to be as well as some negatives. There has to be some positives as well. Like, yeah, it's like a byproduct positive, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's like an accidental positive, yeah, rather than you know something that actually is important. Because I mean, that emu would find a place to lie down anyway. Yeah, definitely. It is, it's just like, oh, hey, this is easy, uh, <laughs> easy nest. You know, the deer has already raked out everything, so I just right. sit down here and lay yeah. some eggs. Yeah, exactly. So, mentioning the changes in animal populations, what is this about? Yeah, so um, probably heard on other podcasts, other bits of media like documentaries and stuff, that deer have the potential to be something called environmental engineers. Uh, this is due to the previously talked about altering of plant communities. And so um, so they, they completely change a habitat or, or can. So uh, research has shown that habitats with samba deer of high and low population densities have had their impact studied. They've shown that areas with high populations have reductions in richness. So richness is a biological term for species diversity. So how many different species there are in an area. Um, abundance. Abundance is population numbers, right? Um, so they've shown they've had reductions in richness and abundance of small mammal species and reptiles. So the way they measure this is by getting multiple sites of the same type of environment like we talked about before, and environmental conditions and working out the deer numbers in the area. Then over a long period of time, it's usually like a year, sometimes a few months, um, and there's uh, a lot of different styles of traps are set. So these are really fun to use. So uh, one style of trap is called an Elliot trap, which is like this little rectangle box uh, made of like stainless steel, and there's two gates at either side. There may be like the... the things like 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by maybe 30 centimeters and you put bait inside of it and a small mammal go will go in and, and get trapped um pitfall traps so a pitfall trap is 
basically like a bucket in the ground. Um, and then you'll have a small fence that's like 10 centimeters high, uh, you know, going uh, maybe 30 meters along. And then you have all these buckets in the ground along this this fence. So small mammals and reptiles run up to the fence, like, hey, I can't cross this. They keep running until they fall into the pitfall trap. And then there's camera traps um, and sometimes large, large traps. So then um, the animals are collected every single day. So that's a lot of field work. Um, they're usually banded to avoid um, bias because some animals are really stupid and just get trapped like every single time. We've had this before um, where an animal will just get trapped every single night. <laughs> it's like, you are an idiot. Stop. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how they measure this reduction in um, in numbers, right? Because they can see that the areas with high deer, there's there's a low amounts of these animals being trapped. Areas with low amounts of deer, there's a high amount of these animals being trapped. Hope I said that in the right order. Um, and so yeah, these these reductions in numbers are attributed to not just the reduction in food availability because samba deer eat a lot. They probably eat a lot more than in you know a small small marsupial would. They are the third largest um, deer species in the world, so yeah. They, they eat a lot more than our small marsupials. Um, but the the shelter and shelter and nesting sites and building materials that they use. So the deer aren't just eating the food, but driving animals away from the good sheltering spots, right? Um, and and so you think about this, it's like you've said yourself, you know, you've, you've found deer bedded. Um, where a deer is bedded, maybe a native animal could have been there. Maybe they could have used those materials that were ground up um, or, or that were used in that specific area. Um, yeah, it's, it's, so that's, that's how the habitat engineers. It's funny you say that, but like quite often you see deer and kangaroos bedded together. Um, you know, they they work work together because kangaroos are the first things to spook and yeah. you know, they'll they'll share share the area quite well from what I've seen anyway in in the areas that I've, I hunt. Yeah. But you got to not just think about the kangaroos, but the tiny little patamelons, um, maybe, actually, I don't think those animals are near there, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe bandicoots, antichinus, um, all those smaller animals. It's not just about the, the megafauna. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, I definitely can see that, that part of things. Um, what about predator impacts? something that gets talked about a lot in hunting circles, um, you know, whether it be podcasts, shows, all of that type of stuff, um, is that the presence of deer and specifically shot deer increase the amount of predators, for example, dingoes and foxes. Has this been explored scientifically? Yes. And I actually have so much to add, so much more to add since my research for the action plan than what I've got here. Um, on, on our notes. So this is really interesting, and I had so much fun researching this. Um, so, yeah, so the scats, so the poop of wild dogs, foxes, and dingoes can gets analyzed um, by by scientists. So that's a less fun part of field work, um, where they just go ahead and collect poop. I don't but, know. That sounds pretty you know, fun. That's pretty interesting seeing all Yeah, that's like a Tuesday and... for you. Um, it's wild. <laughs> so... And specifically, this was done in Victoria. This has been done multiple times in Victoria. Um, 
where all of these animals, all the urethian, so European introduced um, carnivores, actually do eat deer. Now, uh, there was a really, really interesting study done on shot deer. So the team of researchers went out with hunters and shot, uh, I think it was like 30 deer over, over like a, a week or so. It was a pretty insane effort. And they got the, the hunters to take all the meat out, right? So the carcasses were left um, as, as, a, as a normal hunter would leave a carcass, right? So like... You know, a bit of meat here and there, and and all that gut um, and skin and stuff like that. Yeah. So the wild dogs and foxes absolutely um, eat shot deer, and this is really important for later when we talk about our, my my response for like why recreational hunters should be included. Um, now, what it doesn't prove though is that scavenging directly increases the population of those predators that hasn't specifically been proven however it seems likely because if there's an easy source of food then they're going to take it and sudden increases in short-term availability of food can can definitely increase population numbers so um there i haven't found any research that definitively says deer increases wild dog or you know dingo or fox numbers so i don't i don't want to put that out there but in in my opinion it does seem likely now something really interesting uh a scientist proposed in in 2000 this hasn't been followed up on because it's probably really hard to actually uh design experiment for this that by opening up the understory of forests because remember we talked about how they they the shrub layer and they, and they the foliage in the understory, um, the movement of these predators has been aided in an indirect way, right? So these, these deer are eating shrubs, they're creating pathways that these um, foxes and wild dogs can traverse, and it would have been harder if, if those deer weren't there. Um, that, that was just proposed by scientists uh, quite a few years ago. It would be really hard to actually design an experiment to like confirm that, yeah, I'd, uh, but I'd, but it's really interesting. I'd probably disagree there because kangaroos and well, kangaroos they you know clear paths through the the understory yeah. and they're bigger than dogs and foxes as well. So it'd be yeah very hard to yeah um like it's it's just a really interesting hypothesis that he that he made up and yeah like what what do you reckon you know. Have you done much to deal with wild dogs in forests? No, I I haven't had any any run-ins with wild dogs. You know, I've seen a few dingoes out in the okay. in the Simpson Desert, but that's a, yeah, that's about all. I've only hunted uh, Victoria twice, so yeah, I had no run-ins with wild dogs out there. So, but you know, um, on my hunting properties, you know, especially around fawning season, um, that end of November, December. Um, April, February, you see quite a bit of fox scat with, you know, bits of um, fawns in it and also um, wedgies, wedgetail eagles. They seem okay. to um, prey on fawns. Yeah, it makes sense. Pretty heavily as well because they're, you know, that right sight, right size. So, yeah. So, on that, um, 
so think about this because you know we're talking about like indirect positives, right? You're thinking, look, look, wage tower eagles, easy food source that they're taking. That's good for the wedge tail eagle, right? That's pretty good. Increased wedge tail eagle numbers. But now, maybe just again, this this isn't research. This is just like me just free balling here. If there's an increase in um, wedge tail eagle numbers due due to you know them uh, predating on deer, they might be outcompeting this uh, the smaller predators. Maybe like they could brown goshawks or stuff like that. So. It might seem like a positive. Actually, wedge tail eagles are so cool. Um, so more of them is definitely a positive. Um, but except for farmers in yeah, the except for season. farmers. <laughs> um, and if you're a brown goshawk, maybe not. If you're a smaller raptor, maybe not. Um, so uh, something on that study where they they got those deer. So what they did was they they worked with a farmer um, as well. It was all done in the in the parks. It wasn't done on any private property. But they put these carcasses in three locations. Well, more than three, but three main spots. Right by the fence of this farm in the park. Um, a certain amount of distance in the park. And then really deep into the forest, right? And you see a kind of like a, a bell curve being formed on which carcasses were preferred. So the carcasses, so seventy percent of carcasses were scavenged on by wild dogs, and sixty percent on were scavenged by foxes. Right, the wild dogs and foxes preferred the ones that were not deep in the forest and not by the fence, because really deep in the forest is where people go and shoot samba deer and and where some um, wild dog population control happens. Right, where they get shot. Right by the fence, well, it's right by a farm, and farmers shoot wild dogs. So these tended to stay away from those. But the one that was the middle distance was where the ones predate, uh, scavenged on the most because it's an area that was least traversed by um, people shooting wild dogs and foxes. And I thought that was just really interesting. Was there anything with the relationship with dogs and foxes on these carcasses? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, actually, yeah. Um, very few times would you see both at the same carcass, like at the same time, but wild dogs were usually scaring away foxes. So the presence of dogs usually meant there wouldn't be a fox in the immediate area um, of that carcass. As you would think. <laughs> yeah, um, it was really interesting. It's really cool how... These scientists, these biologists worked with hunters to do this. Um, you might not appreciate that they shot like 30 of them, but uh, no, that's it's for right. science. Like I said, control's fine. Eradication yeah. isn't. <laughs> oh, it's for science, you know. Yeah, no, that, that's fine, and that's citizen science at its best, you know. That's um, where conservation and hunting and fishing go side by side with conservation, you know, yeah. whether it be America, whether it be Europe, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, all of these things go side by side and it seems that scientists, when it's done right, involve hunters yeah, with their and, research. Um, and we, we're going to come back to the study when we talk about you know, our response, but think about this. You know, you and someone talk about, or you and heaps of people talk about how in the US, in certain areas, you have an obligation to bring back as much meat as possible, Right. So 
when we're talking about how an availability of a sudden availability of edible biomass, right, might increase wild dog population numbers. This is one on deer that had a lot of edible biomass taken out because the hunters, you know, they took as much. So what if there's a hunter who just shot for the trophy, like for the antler trophy, right? What if there's people just shooting, distributing them and not taking meat? So we're going to come back to this today. I shouldn't have brought it up, but um, <laughs> it's just something to think about that, you know, maybe there does need to be an obligation to bring back as much meat as possible. Yeah, it happens, but when you're talking about population controls as well, it's it's something that's that's a part of it um, on a smaller smaller scale. On a larger scale, it can lead to you know population increases in in wild dogs. Like you said, we'll discuss we'll talk about that um, a bit later. Um, so. We talked about how this is mostly going to be a damage done to the environment, the neutral, the natural environment. Um, however, farms are important. A lot of hunting in Australia is done on private property, um, on farms. Has the effect on farms, farmers, etc., been studied? Yeah. Um, so I found two major studies on how they affect agricultural infrastructure, right? Um, so that's like fences, barriers, etc. The thing is, um, these studies were done by talking to the land managers, so the, the owner of the farm or and otherwise like a, some sort of production company, and is mostly anecdotal evidence. So there's, it's really hard to publish numbers done on infrastructure. However, there's analysis that were done um, uh, there's been some done on hand, so let me, let me go back. It's hard to find actual numbers done to the damage on infrastructure because it's so subjective as well. Um, you know how a farmer values their time and all that sort of stuff. But what they do to crops and plant-based farms has been studied. There was a study done in Victoria on all of the authority to control wildlife permits issued from 2002 to 2007. Um, so at that time, I don't think you need these permits anymore, but at that time you needed a permit to shoot deer on private property in Victoria. I'm not sure if that's still a thing or not. Um, I don't but this, this so. study don't, uh, looked at all those authority to control wildlife permits from 2002 to 2007 on deer. Um, now, the things that came up the most were deer eating specific trees, um, specific fruits, the vegetables. Um, some people were saying they're competing for pasture, which, look, does make sense, um, and destroying crops by trampling and fouling water sources, right? So not like a hard study where they went to farms and just sat there and watched them, but just looking at all the reasons why farmers wanted to shoot deer um, in that time period, those were what came up the most. Yeah, stuff like wallowing and in waterways, creeks, and that yeah. can be... Huge, huge issues, as as you said, um, fences and stuff like that. What about cattle, goats, and other livestock? Yeah, so remember um, when we talked about interspecific competition? So, you know, deer eat the same thing that cattle will, right? So there's massive dietary overlap. Um, as far as I could tell, 
that this ha hasn't really been studied extensively enough to say, hey, look, if you have deer where your cattle are grazing, that's going to be an issue. But then we come back to the drought situation. That might be an issue because cattle, you know, bring a lot of money. And if you have deer in an area, look, you might need to get rid of them. Um, so it, it hasn't been studied to, enough to say, look, get rid of all the deer that are around your cattle. It just might be a good idea in, time, in times of drought. Then going um, going on from that, spread of disease and pathogens. Australia recently had a scare with a disease in cattle um, from Indonesia, foot and mouth disease. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it possible that deer might have any biosecurity ramifications? Yes, and I found this so interesting to study and, and research. Um, biosecurity is so interesting. So... Due to deer being introduced from overseas, right, from many different areas, from, you know, like you said before, uh, from Asia and from Europe, um, there's a huge risk of spreading endemic diseases. So diseases that were already here, but definitely exotic diseases. And this can be bacterial-based diseases, um, viral um, uh, or parasitic in nature, right? And this can be harmful to wildlife, it can be harmful to livestock, but there's also some examples where it's, um, it might be harmful to people, some of the diseases that they might be spreading. Um, this gets reviewed every couple of years by an organisation called um, Animal Health Australia. This has a lot of levels to it. Like I said, this is so interesting to, to research. Um, so interrupt me at any point to get me to expand more because uh, this is just so, so cool. Um, some protozoan parasites, so really small parasites. Uh, so protozoa are tiny microscopic, uh, like one-celled organisms, which are just like living free. And they're usually parasitic in nature and cause a lot of damage. These, these protozoa, right? So protozoan parasites. They can cause uh, zoonotic diseases in people, and that's been detected even in Australian drinking water in our catchment areas um, due to, like, from the deer feces. So deer with these protozoan uh, parasites are pooping around our water catchments, and then these, these this poop is being analysed. And there's, I don't know, how to, this is so hard to pronounce, cryptosporidium. Um, has been detected and giardia i'm sure you know giardia quite well yep um and so giardia you know when when ingested causes the runs makes you poop yourself a lot um and so cryptosporidium can also cause that as well as a lot of respiratory issues you know breathing issues so the actual risk hasn't really been quantified yet and it's probably in the lower end, especially because Australia has really high standards of um, water filtration, like in our, uh, I don't know what they're called, you know, when they send water to your house. Um, I can't remember what they're called now, even though I did a whole semester on it. Anyway, um, it's also possible that deer could be carrying Lyme disease. It's not detected, never been detected in Australia, but just because something's not detected doesn't mean it's not here, you know. Um, so it, it's possible that some might have Lyme. Very unlikely, but the the main thing is, which has been detected, is like yeah, they have cryptosporidium and giardia, um, and they're pooping in the water. 
Do you know so, if there's been any studies? I know it's been a big thing in the States over the last couple of years with the vid. I won't say the um, full word okay. because otherwise it will get get flagged. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was um, a study last year or maybe the year before published that deer can at least carry that virus, right? Like Yeah, but like, in Australia or just... Just the I don't know if it's, American. I don't know if it's been detect um, study in Australian deer, but it's certainly a worry because of just how viruses spread. If they know they can, then they then they might. Um, so that's it's certainly a concern. Well, I guess it depends on how concerned you are about the vid, as you say, <laughs> in the first place, which I haven't got, which is so strange, um, but. I talk to like three people, so it may be not surprising. <laughs> and it's all through the internet. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but everyone around me has had it, but not me. So, so look, the the main concerns, which has been heavily studied in Australia, are these these protozoan parasites that, um, yeah, they 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 put they might be putting it in our water. Luckily, we have good filtration services, so they. So the risk is low, but it's present now. Livestock and our wildlife, things I'm more interested in. People getting diseases, whatever. Our animals getting diseases, that's not on. Um, and this is, there's so many points of transmission in this, this field, this area. Um, so deer worldwide have been shown that they can transmit diseases and parasites to both humans and animals um, during use of pasture, right? So just by being in the pasture land, they might be able to transmit diseases to your cattle. Um, or by people, and this can be through the sharing of a water source, right? So if a deer or even a whole herd of deer have some sort of transmittal disease and are sharing a dam or a trough, um, any other uh, water source, and they're sharing it with cattle, goats, other livestock, the disease might be transmitted just by being in close proximity with them. So building on top of that, uh, working animals so, like, you, your, your border collies and kelpies and stuff um, actually can be affected from diseases from deer. Uh, an interesting study on hunting dogs, so to bring it back to hunting, an interesting study on hunting dogs from eastern to northern Australia has shown that hunting dogs are most like retrieval, tracking, and pig dogs uh, can and have caught, like this has been detected, uh, zoonotic diseases directly from deer and can die from them. But, and that's not cool because I love my dog and I would, I would not want that to happen, right? I wouldn't call your dog a hunting dog though, but... Uh... No, he's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> he was meant to be a hunting, a, a tracking and, and retrieval dog, but even the vet says he's unintelligent for his breed. So <laughs> that's okay. Um, now, so they can also transmit the disease to, to livestock, to, to working dogs, so, so the property owner's dog, while from people... Um, this has this varies in probability depending on the area and the species, etc. But um, I don't know. It's it's really important. And so talking about diseases that deer actually had and also have verifiably had and spread within Australia is our leptospirosis, lep- leptospirosis, lepto, leptovirus is the short term as how to say it. Um, so it's a disease that can cause fever and headaches and chills and aches in, in people. People can catch it, 
but dogs dogs catch it a lot so if you're if you've got a dog um usually you get um like parvovirus in um vaccine in your c3 and c5 but you can go to the vet and get c7 which is uh, a vaccine for lepto and it's really important like northern territory in queensland really needs like you need to get lepto vaccine for your dog um so it, it can cause death if not treated in dogs and definitely in people um now in victoria samba fallow and hog have actually had active active testing for lepto antibodies um and they've all tested negative but rusa rusa deer have tested positive for leptosporosis virus antibodies which means they've been exposed to this virus so actively rusa deer in victoria they they might have this virus um doesn't mean that all of them have it and it doesn't mean that samba fallow and hog don't have it it just means that samba it's been detected in rusa like it's actively been confirmed to be in rusa in victorian deer um in victorian rusa deer um it just hasn't been found yet in samba deer in victoria um now queensland red deer and again this doesn't mean all but some have been shown to have leptovirus antibodies and acabane virus antibodies. And this can affect, there's been a few other diseases as well that can affect livestock and other animals. Um, so, so I just talked for a long time. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's yeah. um, good for you to be able to have this space for you to go down every rabbit hole that you need. So that way hunters and, Anyone else that is listening to this podcast have a decent understanding of the whole biologist side of things when looking into all of this type of stuff. Um, what precautions are being taken to prevent the spread of disease? Um, so this comes down to the individual, right? So I'm definitely not saying to stop harvesting deer, Okay. Don't don't do that. Keep shooting deer, please, <laughs> and take your dogs because studies have shown um, hunters with dogs, like in Australia, are more successful than without. That's just a whole other thing. Anyway, um, so what's really important, what's most important here, is hygiene. Now I know, and I know a lot of people, including yourself, want to be like as manly, as tough, as primal as possible, and it feels nice to work Liver with your bands, right? <laughs> we're not going down that path sorry um, you said primal and that's the first thing that uh, popped in i know right <laughs> um and like you want to get your hands bloody it feels it feels good um and like that's what our ancestors did uh i understand that i've, I've done that myself right uh but when talking about the health of our dogs no nah, you know not on right so unfortunately, we have this situation where doing it the primal way might be harming ourselves, it might be harming our dogs, and might be spreading diseases. Um, it might also be harming the farmers' livestock and the farmers' pets. You know, if you're on private property, and that's not cool because cattle are exp- like livestock's expensive, and you don't want to be putting yourself in a position where you might accidentally, unknowingly, expose livestock to diseases so our biosecurity precautions i've done an article on eureka tactical 
about what you can do to prevent spread of diseases. Um, first, well, mostly just about biosecurity. First, a good plastic rubbish bag is good, um, which you need because rubber gloves, but preferably nitrile, should be used when you're cutting up a deer. Um, it, if it, I know, I, I can see your face. You're like, I don't want to use rubber gloves, but you also don't want to poison never your have, friend's never cattle. Will. <laughs> but I don't know, man, like, you know, you you might be exposing your hands to, to this disease, then you go talk to the farmer, and you, you, you pad his border collie. I love border collies. You might be giving him lepto, you know what I mean? So you've got your rubber gloves on because we're, we're taking biosecurity precautions and Bacterial we're not spreading hand diseases. Wash, mate. Bacterial hand wash. <laughs> less, uh, that's, less, a, that's a different conversation. Less to pollution. Sanitizers versus detergents. Less um, pollution. But, <laughs> you know, take off your gloves afterwards, put them in this plastic rubbish bag. That way, you know, that you've been as secure as possible. Um, most importantly, the most important thing you can do for biosecurity is clean your boots, especially if you're going from an area to an area. Clean your boots. Seriously. So many diseases, not just the ones we're talking about right now, um, can carry on your boots. And uh, patch dieback is a, is a massive one where people are going from property to property, they're bringing this disease, and the whole pasture is, is dying. But anyway, um, so clean your boots. Generally, with a light detergent is what I use because I have leather boots, so it doesn't soak in anything, so my boots aren't wet. <laughs> um, I know I used to have, like, Merrells, and, like, if you wash them, they're wet for a very long time, but not with these leather boots. So get a light detergent, spray them down, spray yourself down with uh, after you've washed with a sanitizer. A good brand is, like, F10 because it's veterinary grade. Um, when you leave town... Get your car washed because that water is staying in that area. And then if there's diseases, they'll get filtered out in that local area and you're not transporting a disease from the hunting ground to your house or from property to property. Um, look, I understand that there's a lot of pride in being dirty and having a dirty vehicle and stuff, but look, there's no pride in transmitting diseases and bacteria, viruses and seeds, especially... Uh, I've talked to a farmer today. Uh, I've been talking to him a lot about this sort of stuff, and he takes these precautions. He doesn't let anyone on his property who hasn't cleaned his shoes. Like um, up north in the banana farms, you can't enter a property without going through a car wash that's on the property first. Um, and you have to have a different pair of shoes for town and for the property, right? Because this sort of stuff is really important. Yeah, it's funny um, you say that. But- like the Adelaide Hills is a very orchard, vineyard-rich place. And, you know, the last five, maybe six years, you've been seeing a lot of the farm biosecurity signs going up. Um, yeah. There's one one vineyard I drive past all the time, and, yeah, it's got a big, you know, big, uh, like, almost for sale sign, but it's like, please respect our farm biosecurity. Don't wander through the... The vines. This is the reasons why why it's not good yeah. to do do it. And you know, this is the types of things you can track through the vineyards and diseases you can give the vines, which affects the grape harvest, which affects the wine that you want to come up here and drink. Yeah, it's so important. And um, I know it seems like a little things like, oh, my boots are a little bit dirty. Oh, there's this 
Like, it's just a bit of dirt. Like, it, it's not. Unfortunately, it's not. Um, it's not just a bit of dirt. It, it might be dirt that's got diseases in it. And, um, and yeah, like, when you're, when you're skidding this deer or whatever, you might be getting this stuff on you and your clothes. And then you go onto a different property, you go into a different shire, and you've just transmitted a disease. And, look, I get it. It's unfortunate because I know, like, everyone wants to be that, you know, a dude who's just in with his bare hands and stuff and, like, his car is dirty, full of dirt, like, but it's just the world we live in, you know? I just don't think it's something that's common, common knowledge. It's not a pride thing. It's just, you know, like... Even myself, it's not something I, I really think about. You know, you go go into a property, you know, you flick your boots off when you finish. You chuck them in your car. You get home. You chuck them in your garage or your shed. Or yeah, it's not something that's you know really thought about per se, unless you're in an environment where the farmers are really cracking down on that type of thing. Anyway. Yeah, but um, you know. Uh, this isn't specifically about deer now, but just uh, a property owner will appreciate, even if they didn't ask you to do it, if you take the initiative and be like, hey, just so you know, like, you know, I've got these things going on to make sure I'm not harming your property. Um, and, yeah, to bring it back to deer, like, yeah, deer can carry these diseases. And just it's just something to think about. Um, I know, like, the risk is low, but it's not zero. Yeah, it's um, definitely something to be mindful of. You know, when I've travelled overseas to New Zealand and Mexico, it's something that they check. They check your your shoes for any grass yeah. seeds. You know, if there's any bit of dirt on it, they'll chuck it in a wash for you. Um, tents, stuff like that. So they check all that for grass seed, clothes, socks. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I've noticed here too. Um, not long ago, well, it's interesting we're speaking about this because... One of the farms that I hunt, um, they had lease farmers on it. And, you know, it was a pretty well-looked-after farm up until the lease lease farmers came on it. And they came from a property, like they brought stock down from properties a few hours away. And this property never had Salvation Jane on it. And then okay. since, since these farmers um, graze sheep on it, this property is littered with Salvation Jane now. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a sucky thing because it sucks to walk in. It's you know, right. It's it's pretty itchy. But the other day, um, I had a Salvation Jane plant pop up in my driveway where I've washed oh, no, washed down the car in my driveway. So that's just a prime so example it, of it. Yeah, that's a real first-hand example of exactly what I'm talking about. Um, now imagine if you picked up lepto from a deer and, and you don't have a dog, but Maybe let's say you did, man. You'd feel pretty sucky if you, if you know, you accidentally poisoned your own dog. Yeah, you know? I've never heard of lepto up until this point, so it's definitely okay. something I'm going to have to. Oh, it's rampant through Queensland and Northern Territory. Yeah, that's Queensland, Northern Territory. There's lots of things rampant up up in that way. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> like you saying Shire and. There's a few other ways you pronounce stuff that I've been having a giggle as when you say it. All right. <laughs> like shires aren't a thing down here. You say not really think here anymore. The way you say yeah. the way you say cool as well. Okay. <laughs> cool. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good laugh anyway. Um, so back onto like soil, water, and nutrients and stuff. Um, 
back to the effect on the environment and the last on that topic, what about their their effects on soil and waterways? I love soils. I I literally right next to me, not for this podcast, just because I have the uh, Australian Soils and Land Survey book and uh, Australian Soil Classification book because I just love soils so I much. I totally thought you were going to pull out a jar of dirt then and quote Jack Sparrow for a second. Oh, I, I should have done that. <laughs> no, but that's that's too much of a setup. I'm not definitely done it. I love soils. I didn't um, think it was going to be a setup. I just thought you're that type of guy just to have a jar of dirt. I am that type of guy, but <laughs> there's massive security risks involved in that, so I wouldn't. Um, so, like, soil is everything around us, right? It's um, it's what forms our, our life, and it's everything to do with soil is highly qualitative, which means it's it's kind of subjective because I'd ha- I can do a whole podcast about soils. But to identify a soil, it's not like a species of animal where you um, can get its DNA. It's to do with, like, the structure and the color and, and all this other stuff. So so I did a whole subject called Soils and the Environment, like I said before. And um, I, when, when I was doing it, I was like, I have to study soil for a whole it's semester. That's, like, dirt. Um, but it's actually so interesting. So, like how a deer isn't just a deer, right? There's orders to soil. There's 15 different types of soil in Australia, um, according to the guide like I just showed you, right? And they each have um, generally like eight subcategories. There's so many different types of soil. And a soil type is determined by its clay content, um, particle size, structure, how much water it can absorb, um, its pH, the water pore size, so the pores within the soil, uh, salinity, which is the salt content, and so much more. Okay, and this is really important to say how deer affect the soil. Um, soils are formed by a process called pedogenesis, um, it, which is the formation of uh, of soil. Right, it's formed from the weathering of rocks and all this other stuff. Um, is influenced by the by weathering by rain. Um, and biological interactions. Okay, so plants, animal, fungal, and bio- other biological interactions um, help make what a soil is. So fall soil gets formed uh, alongside all of this other biota across the millions of years that we talked about before to get to where it is today, to get to um, the same spot where the animals and the plants are. Now, how does the soil become unhealthy? Because it's like dirt's just dirt. How it, it actually does have a health. Um, is by the unnatural removal of plant material and interactions of invasive species. So the aforementioned higher rates of predation amongst certain uh, plants, uh, which which kills the plants, and that means lower amounts of carbon going into the ground. Um, the the nitrogen levels going into the ground. And it's altering the amount of minerals that are normally formed, normally found in that soil. Okay, so one of the most important things, um, probably not the most important thing I learned, but it's so interesting, is compaction. Okay, so you know when you, when you stand on soil, it, it compacts. Um, soils have something called a water-filled pore space, WFPS, which is the ratio of volumetric soil water content to total soil porosity. 
So like a sponge, think of a sponge, right? It can hold a certain amount of, uh, of water. So there's these pores underground that get filled with water. These pores have three different sizes, a macro pores, mesopores, and micro pores. Um, so roots will dig through the soil. They find these pores um, to get to the water, and that provides structure to the soil, to everything underneath you. Um, so the issue occurs is still compaction, where frequent downward force compacts um, these pores. So something that might have mesopores or, or macropores rather gets compact into mesopores, and that might get compact into micropores. So the um, plants then can't penetrate the soil and then can't can't grow. So no water penetration. Um, if it's too compacted, there's no water penetration as well as no plant penetration, okay? So if there's no water penetration, that means it's a hard surface. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So if, there, if there's a hard surface, water sits on top. Um, or if it's on a slope in times of rain, creates a runoff. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. So think about this. Deer walking along causes compaction i know you're thinking like kangaroos and all this but we've, we've mentioned before this is an extra layer plus um kangaroos spread out their weight a lot more evenly and like they hop and all that sort of stuff whereas deer have you know this amount of surface area like a fist size amount of surface area for the whole body weight compacting down Hard and hooves versus soft padded feet as well so. yeah exactly so, and it's also just extra among what the soil is already taken. Um, so, deer compacting the soil as they're walking can create a track, especially if they're in high numbers. And you see this with cattle all the time. Um, it creates a hardened trail. This trail can then capture rainfall, right? And this can create like a, a stream as, as the rain goes. And if it's downhill, it creates a stream. As the rain continues, like all of Australia had this last year, this creates a gully, and that's called um, a gully erosion. So as the water erodes away the gully, it gets bigger and bigger. And this can create uh, landslides. So I actually worked on a farm that like lost an entire paddock due to this, um, due to this effect. Now, I'm not saying that deer will always do this, but it's something that deer can cause. Um do do have you seen before like these tracks that deer, cattle, and stuff can make? Yeah, not so much. I've seen the tracks, but not the erosion side with deer, um, feral goats definitely. Um, but more yeah. so on this property that I was talking about, um, where they were overrunning and overgrazing sheep, and they yeah. graze the Massive paddock. Problem. They graze the paddocks bare. And then, you know, we had a couple of dry dry summers. The paddocks were bare. And then we've just had a massive, like, rains throughout the last six months. So right. I've seen a lot of the erosion effect happening. Yeah, definitely. And when I've, when I've brought this up, people be like, oh, cattle do that, goats do that. It's like, yeah. Like, yeah, I know. And, like, yes. But, you know... Deer do it too, and it's just trying to outline the effects that deer can be a contributing factor. Um, so, so back to the studies, right? 
So because deer like to concentrate around sources of water, a lot of observational studies have shown that um, a lot of conservation departments going back uh, like 30 years have, have shown, you know, deer go around these water sources. Um, and because they're continuously traveling to these water sources, these hard surfaces are being made by deer. Now, there's been no direct linkage. Um, uh, so, like, no direct linkage has been made um, to degradation that was caused solely by deer. It's just known as one of the driving factors, right? Um, deer have been shown to cause a lot of compaction and gully erosion in areas that are particularly vulnerable. So, areas that are already vulnerable to uh, certain types of erosion, such as low-lying areas and, like, around water, they, they have been shown as a major driving factor towards more erosion and um, they, they're particularly damaging. Um, so the, the most of the concern in this area is if um, the area is highly localized, then the consequences can be really severe. So it's... They're not the only thing that's causing this. Other things are as well. Um, but again, it's just, it's just extra things that environment has to handle. Um, a study following rooster deer recorded localized erosion in the soil. But like again, they know that there's other herbivores in the area, since those herbivores may have you know, historically already been there where rooster were not. So it's just another thing. So they're not exactly... I'm not saying like deer are the sole cause of gully erosion all the time. That is a a massive factor in this equation. Um, yeah, definitely. And I like talking about soil, so I just <laughs> had to include it. So, what do we do? Like, the that's the damage the deer do to the Australian environment. You know, it can be quite, quite damaging, um, more than what is commonly through thought of in uh, hunting circles and Australian hunting media. Uh, before we have our own uh, conservation, uh, conversation on what we think we should do, should be in- implemented, um, have there been any studies on how effective recreational hunting is compared to culling? Um, there have. So I think, I think before we, we talk about this, because... Um, I used a lot of that research in my submission to the National Feral Deer Action Plan, and I think we we definitely do need to talk about that. Um, I want to ask you, Ian. So, what what have you learned so far? I guess, and then you know, if there's something that you've learned, um, like a cause of damage that you didn't know about, has that sort of changed any of your thinking look so i i knew most of the the base points on what we covered um when it comes to damage yep i knew all of these things had a factor in it especially when mixed in with you know areas where there's populations of several species of introduced species as well as cattle and sheep and everything else that goes into the factor. Um, probably my biggest takeaway so far on it, and it's probably something I'm going to be more 
conscientious conscientious of is the um the pathogen side of stuff and the disease stuff um you know right even my boots a scrub in between properties um and you know possibly giving my car a squirt off before going to a property that's probably my biggest takeaway in it because i knew a bunch of this stuff you know especially with the soil science side of stuff um doing that conservation land management course that was a right major major um subject in that course so yeah um would you say that like i said my my experience before going to uni and stuff is i was just reading and listening to a lot of people australian hunters talk about deer and um they're like hey yeah we shouldn't cull them because they don't really do anything and I know in the past year of listening to you, listening to Sendermate podcast, um, that there has been more of an acknowledgement that they do do damage. Um, I'm kind of just disproving my own point, but uh, would you say the hunting community has, a, as have I said anything tonight, that would be in contradiction to the general thoughts of the hunting community in Australia. Well, I can't speak for the community itself. You know, I like uh, you are a figurehead. Yeah, <laughs> and you represent every single Australian deer hunter right now. <laughs> like I've said in the past, you know, I did a as a kid. You know, every um, free choice um, project that I got to do on anything always uh, always revolved around environment conservation, introduced species, whether it was you know, not so much deer when I was younger because there wasn't as many deer as there are now, especially in South Australia. Like, um, they've really skyrocketed in the last 15 to 20-ish years. Um, but, you know, like like I said, all of, my, all of my studies throughout school was introduced species, the impacts they done, um, control methods, you know, because I grew up shooting feral goats, foxes, rabbits, hares, cats, you know, the works as a as a kid. So I knew a lot of the environmental impacts, especially like the predator side. And that's the type of stuff that I'd focus on when I did these school projects and, you know, showing teachers and other students. And that's that's the stuff that I focused on. So I knew a lot of lot of this stuff. But when it comes down to like the control of deer and the eradication of deer and stuff like that, it's more focused on the emotional side for myself as okay. they are such a iconic animal to me. Um, and that's where it's always been a conflict is that conservation versus emotion. And I don't think a lot of hunters can put that into words they have this love for an animal. Um, but then again, you speak to some some hunters, you see it on Facebook, on groups, I would never shoot anything that's not a pest. You know, so there is that side of things as well. Like, I'd never go to Africa because those animals are native and I'm never going to shoot them because they're not pests. I'm never going to go to America because they're not, they're natives and they're not pests, you know. I only shoot stuff yeah. for conservation because they're non-native. 
So there is that side of stuff as well. But I think emotions overtake a lot of the science when it comes to a lot yeah. of it. I would, I would agree. Um, there was a post in one of the groups maybe a few weeks ago. A dude shot a, um, a deer that was still like in velvet. And so many comments were like, and I, I'm sure a lot of it's like in jest, but I, there's a, a seriousness to it as well. People saying like you should have let it grow um, and all that sort of stuff. And the dude's just like, uh, actually, a lot of it was serious because um, I, I, I talked on it. I commented, I'm like, hey, man, I was the only person in, like, 50 comments to be like, hey, you shot your first deer. That's super cool. Ignore the haters and stuff. Um, and this dude said he got heaps of DMs of people, like, hating on him because he shot this deer that wasn't, like, fully grown out yet and stuff. Um, I remember back in the day when more people would post more kills, I guess, in the groups. Um, uh, someone shot on their own property, uh, it was, I think it was like three does, like in this, like just like a once kind of deal. Yeah. And posted it and got so much hate because it's like, oh, you know, you're reducing the numbers. Now, like future hunters won't have any kind of deal. And this dude's like, well, one, this is my own property. And two, like, I'm trying to, like, I, I'm trying to get rid of him. Um, and uh, it's just, it's just re- really interesting. Um, I guess none of them are specifically saying they don't cause damage, so it's not really relevant to to this discussion. But just going, I off, find it interesting going off of the the stag, right? Um, Half grown stag buck, whatever it was. How many does hinds did that? Like you, you see it. Like these people, they're like, "This is my first stag that I've shot. This is my first you know, but there might've been a spiker with it. There might've been a hind with it. There might've been a doe with it. Um, they might've driven, like ran a spotlight past like five does and they go, Oh, there's a stag. It's half grown. So they've shot that instead. So they've got this somewhat pride going, you know, I've shot a stag. So that's where those comments going, Oh, you know, it would have been good to see its potential. You should have given it another year or two. I hate those comments, but, Okay. You know, if you're shooting something that's half grown, there's a good chance that you've passed up hinds and does and spikes and that before you've shot something. And it's not going to be always the case, but there's a good chance right. before you've shot that that animal that you've passed up other animals to shoot that one and then you're backing yourself into a corner going, you know, oh, it's just for conservation. It's just for meat. It's just for that. You know, if you wanted meat, Shoot a few does, shoot a few hinds, shoot a spike. Um, yeah, you know, there's um, it's a it's just whole... really interesting, and I don't think he deserved as much hate as he got. Yeah, it, it uh, depends. Like you know, some some of it, you know, you see see people's attitudes towards it um, when they post photos up, and you're like, yeah, that's probably not the best attitude to have, and they cop flag. Some people are generally excited that they've shot their first deer and it just happened to be a half-grown stag or right. a buck or whatever and it's just shed its antlers or it's half-grown or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's a mixed, mixed thing because, you know, you've got these people that want to want good deer to be grown. Like, I just love deer in general. Shooting a massive one would be awesome. But right. I love shooting 
you know, a two-year-old, a three-year-old. It's all venison. Right. It's all venison in my freezer at the end of the day. But, you know, yeah. everyone's like, if you want to shoot a bigger one, you have to pass the smaller ones to let the bigger ones grow as well. So it's just a complete, complete different rabbit hole. So there's a... I think it's the federal government has sponsored a working group um, to put together this plan called the National Feral Deer Action Plan, which is really interesting. And it's a proposal. uh, This working group is made up of industry bodies, of scientists from different state departments, um, a shooting industry body, um, and a few stakeholders. And they've put together this um, proposal on how to on ways to reduce deer population numbers, right? Um, now it's not like a law that they're proposing or anything like that. It's just like ways to reduce deer population numbers, actions and measures that can be taken um, that that I guess they hope each state takes up and then landholders take up so each state can reduce deer numbers. So. It's very interesting. How how do you think the Australian populace should deal with deer? And then we'll talk about how these people think we should deal with deer. Look, it's it's a hard one. I want there to be deer forever and always for myself to hunt, for my friends to hunt, for my children to hunt, um, as I love deer and there's such a amazing animal to have on the landscape you know they're a pretty right. animal they're just awesome to watch i love even going out and not shooting them. i love sitting out there and just watching them interact with each other you know they smell um, bad no they don't they don't not compared to i just I, I just i've just got this fact in my head and i just need to put it out there so deer do this thing called self-anointing uh red deer mostly it's a mating method. That right? Most most bucks and stags do yeah. that during the mating season, so, but it doesn't it doesn't smell as bad as when feral goats do it. Like oh, goats are way worse. But just this for everyone who's like deer are so majestic. Just have this in your head, okay? A stag or a buck will be bending down. He's getting ready to go to town. He's getting ready to meet some does. You know, get the doe hose ready, and uh, he pees all over his face. Yep. Just, psh, just fire hose pees all over yep. his face. Um, sometimes they'll pee on the ground and then like roll in it. Um, and then yeah, then they go and pick up chicks. That's that's the method. It's called self anointing. Just any any time you're like, hey, yeah, deer are majestic. I'm like, yeah, they also pee on themselves. Um, I'm not really into. It. I guess you are, but um, who is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You call them majestic and. They are. They're, as Rogan puts it, you know, I know he mainly talks about elk, how he puts it, but they're a forest cow with swords on their head that gr- yeah. drop off and grow back every year. And, you know, the males, very are, cool. the males are friends for most of the most of the year until the rut and roar, and then they're trying to kill each other and succeeding. Yeah, I mean, same, you know, go well. into the valley with my friends. Hey, like, we're not friends right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's no. You're right. So it's very, it's very interesting. So, but yeah, so given that coming what, back to the population, like the controlling side of stuff. Um, 
yeah it's a hard one like you know there's properties that i hunt where they go well not so much hunt but i pest control on you know they want every deer shot so you go there purely for pest control um where there's other properties that i hunt where they like seeing the deer but you're managing the numbers um i definitely think numbers should be managed but i don't think they should be brought onto the brink of extinction so to say in the in these environments where they are because what's management to you controlled numbers where you can still go out take a couple when you need to um okay and there's you know enough on the landscape for them to keep reproducing but you can still control so they're not getting out of control i mean i understand that yeah for sure um so who's doing this and you're you're the supreme leader of Australia, um, of deer. Okay. Uh, if who's I'm, who's if the I'm one doing leader, this killing? If I'm supreme oh. leader, we're sending every anti-hunter vegan type to another country. <laughs> we're bringing all of the American hunters. That's why I said of deer. <laughs> no, yeah. Joking. Of, you're, you're in control of who is, is killing these deer. Hunters. And controlling these just, numbers. Okay. Just hunters. Um it's hard whether you'd bring in, and I know you hate hunters bringing this up, but a North American model of conservation side, you know, um, we see it with hog deer in Victoria. They have a somewhat North American model of wildlife for that species to look after the species because we've got the world's only huntable population. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's, conservation it's not supposed to be based on people's feelings it's supposed to be based on evidence and science um, does that include hunters feelings yes yes i'm saying that i'm man enough to admit it and i've said this whole time and yeah in other times we've talked it's comes down to how i feel about them and my feelings on them yeah that's cool um which is something as hunters we need to start um, admitting Sat, like yeah. not minimizing the damage they do and the populations and how we feel about it all we yeah we have to put our hearts on the t- wear our hearts on the sleeve type thing and you know this is how we feel about them this is why we want them around yes they are damaging in some aspects um but yeah i would agree um not with the north american model conservation part um because it is not relevant to australia um but but to the parts where hunters need to i think i don't like to generalize but i'm about to the hunting community in general like i said my experience is that minimize the amount of damage deer actually do um like i said for some things i've brought up today i've been attacked um, not like in a literal sense, physically, they're Guilty. fucking pussies. Um, but online, keyboard warriors will call me anti-gunner, um, anti-hunter, and stuff. And you know, because at the start, none of you, maybe ten people in Australia, do more for gun laws than I do um, for Australia. So, um, and it's just because, like, look, there's some people don't want to accept that they do damage to the environment but because of the recreational hunting community the vocal part of the community 
has not accepted that they do damage and that their numbers need to be massively reduced to help the environment is why the recreational hunting community has been left out of this plan um, and why we might be in a little bit of predicament. Um, so what's this plan? Like I said, it's a working, working body that's put together a plan on how, how, how to tackle the deer issue. Like I said, they do damage and they're in massive numbers. Um, they've increased massively in the past uh, few decades. So the plan is to stop the spread of large populations of deer and reduce their impact. That's a pretty good goal. Goal two is to control or eradicate small populations before they spread. That's a very basic tenet of invasion ecology. And protect significant sites from impacts. Um, those are all honourable goals and I think good goals. But they don't want hunters to do it. Their proposed methods and go and read this plan. Don't have someone else interpret it for you because all of the commentary I've seen so far has focused on the wrong things and have misinterpreted it and put out wrong information to the community. Um, and I think it's damaging, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, so they want professional colours to be used, professional shooters, they, they call them. Um, they want people to become volunteer shooters to cull deer. And uh, I like volunteers, that's good. But a volunteer shooter and a recreational hunter are two different things, even though they're like recreational. They say we encourage our recreational hunters to become volunteer shooters because it's shoot, drop, and leave. Um, they're proposing... Um, they're talking about helicopter culls, increased helicopter culls. Um, and look, that's um, it's all they're all valid tools. Like all of these are valid tools. And they're they're encouraging the research and development of new baits and poisons. I bring that up specifically because the hunting community keeps talking about, oh my god, they're gonna they're talking about using more tenacity. No, they're talking about developing new poisons and new types of baits not using 1080. Um, these haven't been developed yet. We don't know their response. And um, I, I don't want poisons to be used at all, but I just, I, just, I just hate all the commentary. Like, oh, my God, if they poison the deer, it's going to do this and this and this. It's like you don't know what poison they're going to use because they don't know what poison they're going to use because it hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, um, I'm just against it hasn't been... poisons and viruses. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a, look, I'm, I'm against them being poisoned as well but the commentary now is people acting as if they're gonna um have widespread use of 1080 but that's not what the plan says at all um it's just it's just something that's annoying me all the time yeah. but they're, they're proposing the use of all these different tools and not recreational hunting um because they believe that recreational hunters um uh, beliefs aren't aligned with conservation values and Look, when you look at the community from afar, they're right, okay? Um, that might trigger some people, but they're right. And that's recreational hunting as a tool. Don't take enough numbers. And that I disproved using science. <laughs> um, but before we get into that, look, they 
we're in a situation now where there's this working body that purposely didn't include recreational hunters because of the hunting community's attitudes. Um, so whether you believe the science or not, it's kind of irrelevant because these guys, if it gets approved, um, if the states take up this plan, it's going to go ahead with or without hunters. And if hunters, um, you know, don't change their attitudes, it's going to continue to happen. Um, look, and it's, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's just, it, this is this is proof that um, our, our community's own actions and words that they've put out, you know, not believing the science of, about damage deer do, has just put the government in a position of being like, okay, you guys sit at the kids' table, the adults are here, and we're gonna, we're just gonna do this without you. Yeah. Um, so again, I just talked quite a lot. No, that's so good. Any, that's good. Uh, you wanna wanna? No, I think inject with anything. No, look, I no, I say a lot of smart-ass remarks for the comedy of things and my personal feelings of things, but I think you you covered it pretty well there. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Well, um, like I said, I disproved some of their points using science. And uh, and I'm going to go over what I don't agree with them with. So I, I submitted on behalf of myself and Eureka Tactical. So this plan is open for submissions. So if you have any thoughts on the plan and you can articulate them well, submit it. If you can't articulate it well, uh, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, don't have interactions with politicians and stuff, but if you're just going to be like, oh, you guys are all idiots, include hunters, I, I don't think that's going to push them to include hunters. But if you can um, put together something pretty good, definitely um, submit it to them so we can get more people representing us. Um, basically, the plan says that recreational hunting and hunters are not suitable to be included due to the population too high to be controlled by hunting and that hunt, recreational hunting is in contrast with best practices to do with conservation. And like I said, I, I agree that, yeah, the community, like you said, they, they want deer, um, but wanting deer means they're just not going to include you, um, like like what they've done. So I in my submission, I talked about that recreational hunting is ground shooting and proved how effective ground shooting can be um so long as you have identifiable goals and ground shooting is a really good tool for population suppression right and we want recreational hunting to be the tool um like i said all of those tools poisons arrow culling all valid we just want recreational hunting to be the most valid and the most used Right. So there was a study that compared contract shooters to volunteer shooters. So their time in the field, their effectiveness, um, effectiveness means killing, like how many animals can they kill in a certain amount of time and per effort. Um, and they did this in Victoria. It's a very good study. And in my article, I'll, I'll make sure to, to link it. Contract shooters cost the state 75% more than volunteers. So volunteer shooters still have a cost to state um, because of, like, accommodation. They might get a fuel reimbursed, food, etc. But when operations included 
contract shooters, there was only 55% increase in effectiveness. And again, effectiveness is amount of animals killed. So then you've got to consider what are the differences between the two? Like one, contractors make money, so they're spending more money on their guns. They have more access to thermals because you're, you're getting paid to do it rather than being a truck driver who then has to afford um, thermals. It's like this is your job, so you're going to make sure you have the best. Yeah. They also have access to suppressors and self-loading firearms, right? So that 55% increase is outside of volunteer shooters' control. Um, but only a 55% increase in effectiveness when it's 75% cost more, I don't think is good enough. Um, and like I said, this is a study done. So like a, a university people, whoever went out and tagged along um, with these people and they included the ADA, the volunteer shooters were all ADA um, people. So it's, it's very interesting, right? And uh, the scales were tipped in the contract shooter's favor. Now, the thing is, like I said, the difference between volunteer shooters and recreational hunters is recreational hunters actually contribute to the economy. Um, so they, a, a volunteer shooter has a cost per kill, even if it's very low because only their fuel and, and food and accommodation has been reimbursed, whereas a recreational hunter is paying all of it. It's paying in. So a study was done in a few years ago, 2014, showed that the average Australian hunter um, directly spends about $1,800 on hunting and indirectly about $2,100 on hunting. Um, that was 2014. That was a a long, long time ago. So it's definitely a lot more now. So that's, that's something that's really got to be considered. And that's what I included. Now, when we were talking about recreational hunting as a tool for population suppression. I, I know that the goal of recreational hunting is to have deer there still um, and don't want to eradicate them. So we need recreational hunters to be part of this and just outline, hey, we, we will do this, but we're not going to kill all of them. And we need to prove that they are actually doing a really good job right now of suppressing their numbers. And I proved that. So we're going to use Victoria as an example. And, and that's what I did. I used Victoria as an example because heaps of studies are done in Victoria. The GMA, um, some people hate it, but I think it's a wonderful tool because it proves our point so well. Um, so hats off to the GMA, actually. Um they might save guns. Um, <laughs> a study was done over an 11-year period from 2009 to, uh, 2009 to 2019 analyzing how many new deer hunters there are in that state. And the amount of hunting licenses increased from 16,000 to 40, just under 42,000 in that 2009 to 2019 period. That's a huge amount. And then just 2019 to 2021, Increased from just under 42,000 to just under 50,000 people um, endorsed for deer hunting. And um, that's correlated with a 49% increase in deer harvest over the average since 2009. So more deer hunters recreationally means more deer being killed. I mean, that makes sense. Just in my document, I again, like, proved it. 
um, this plan says that the numbers are just too high for recreational numbers, uh, for recreational hunters to really suppress. So Victoria has an estimated 1 million deer. Um, 3,000 of these are hog deer, approximately. But we there's no numbers on how many samba deer there are, how many um, chittle, how many fallow, et cetera, et cetera. But um, studies over the world actually use deer hunters' take to infer whole populations. So in 2021, Victorian recreational hunters harvested just under 119,000 deer in total. And uh, just under 69,000 of that were samba deer. And so that's just under 58% of the total harvest. So we can infer that 58% of that 1 million deer are um, samba deer. So that's like 580,000 samba deer in Victoria. Um so with with recreational hunters killing sixty nine thousand samba deer, um, and there being five hundred eighty thousand, that's uh, just under twelve percent of the total deer population. That twelve percent is really important because populations increase by something called uh, intrinsic intrinsic rate of increase. So that's how how many more. Um, deer or any any organism uh, entering that population in a given year or a given time span, right? Deer reproduce once a year, so it's yearly. It's very easy to work out. Um, and that accounts for natural mortality. Now, Samba deer in Victoria have had their intrinsic rate of um, increase analysed, and it's between 15 and 24% a year, Right. And they say that 13 to 19% need to be killed each year just to maintain a stable population. So to keep the numbers exactly the same, around 13 to 19% of that population need to be killed. Um, but deer hunters are taking 12%. So we're already taking between 62 and 91% of the deer required to be taken to, to maintain a stable population. That's so many. That's over half the job done already, right? That's awesome. So, um, so yeah, recreational hunters are doing enough of a job, uh, well, almost the entire job already of just maintaining a stable population. We only need a little bit more to induce a population decline. And, you know, yeah, I think we should induce a population decline because of all the factors we've talked about over the past three hours, um, the damage in the environment. We just need hunters to be the ones who are doing it. Yeah. So the plan really needs to focus on getting hunters out into the field more. Um, that might displease some people who don't want more hunting on public lands. Um, but if you don't, then they're the, they're going to do it. They're going to hire helicopters. They're going to, um, put money to contract shooters. Another major problem I have with this is the aforementioned dog problem, right? So we've, we've talked about the studies. If they just have a shoot and drop policy, which is what culling has, at least in Queensland, um, cullers aren't allowed to take meat. 
And I'm pretty sure that's the rules in Victoria as well. The colors aren't allowed to take meat. Um, then there's going to be so much edible biomass for these dogs to scavenge on. If there's a possible increase in population numbers um, just due to a hunter kill that's taken most of the meat, then there's definitely going to be an increase in wild dog numbers when there's just all this like deer that's been killed and none of the meat's been 100%. taken. Who's going to take the meat? Wild dogs. Um, so they, they need to include recreational hunting in all of their plans. Um, so when it comes down to what should we do, what should we do is have more recreational hunting. The states need to open up more land. 100% agree uh, there. Man, like you rag on about me like not going deer hunting, but it's like, bro, the closest deer I can hunt if I don't pay $3,000 is like however far Cody is from me. Like, I think, <laughs> I think it's like an 18-hour drive. Uh, so the closest deer I have to me that I can hunt easily is 18 hours away, um, unless I want to pay hundreds to thousands of dollars. So Queensland opens up um, like a Victorian-style system. That's more hunters out there taking more deer. So how they can say recreational hunters aren't doing a good enough job, it's like, bro, that's because we can't do anything. Um, yeah. We can't go anywhere. Only Victorians and New South Wales people can... Um, can go there easily, and even like unless you have properties, etc. Even New South Wales system isn't as great as Victoria's system, right? Um, a lot of the so states yeah. could learn from Victoria with their hunting. Yeah, it's so and wild. Fishing. Everybody hates Victoria, but they have the best hunting um, system. Like no, everybody hates the GMA. They don't. But it's like they don't hate they're the Victoria. ones who facilitate it. They don't hate Victoria. They hate Victorians. And more True, specifically, Melbourne. <laughs> True. But, I mean, it's like the GMA gets so much hate. Um, but it, they're, the, they're the only government organization that really facilitates so yeah. much hunting. Um, New South Wales DPI does in, in their programs, and they actually tried last year to, to do better um, and were shut down, and, and uh, if you remember all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, like, open up more hunting. So... I think that what we should do is have more recreational hunting. I think the community needs to accept that deer numbers are insane at the moment and are Legal. causing a lot more damage than you might acknowledge or want to acknowledge. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, we, we do need a massive population decline. I just think that deer hunters, like recreational hunters, need to be the ones who are doing it. And can be the ones who are doing it very easily with um, with just more access. Yeah, access seems to be the, the biggest thing. We just need a Victorian-style approach to public lands in every state. Yeah, and, um, and look, use these other tools as well. Um, if there's a new outbreak in an area, especially in like a, a high-value area, like, Use a helicopter. Just make sure that that can be followed up by some butchers or something, you know? Like, use that meat. Oh, even, um, like, hunt, Hunters for the Homeless um, programs they have in America where they go do all the chopper yeah. shooting, like, especially Ted Nugent and um, 
pig man. They go out, chopper shoot all of these pigs, but they go and recover every single one of them, take them to a processor, and then they go feed the homeless through yeah. Texas. Yeah, and that's so good. Like, um, even something like that, and I've argued it many times with people, like, you know, even if they had someone going through after the chopper cows and, you know, fed the homeless populations in Adelaide, Victoria, all of these places, yeah. it would be I mean, like Some of those places, they use a chopper because you can't get out there on foot, but not every place. Not not every place they use a chopper, you know what I mean? Like You can if you're tough. These these guys up in the choppers aren't tough. <laughs> Still, you know, like there's there's more things we can do. So, you know, we definitely need a population decline. Um, yeah. Well, I I say that in the sense of because I just love Australian nature, but I love um, Australian your, your, nature. Your individual, and so I'm saying you just generally might say, like, no, you don't need a population decline because hunting is, is more important. But from a conservation standpoint, we definitely need a population decline and recreational hunters need to be the ones who do it. We need to be allowed to do it. So how can we do that is with more access. Um, we don't need a North American model simply because we don't need tags, like, they need it because they need to work out the carrying capacity of the land because they want to keep those animals. Look, we don't really need to keep these animals, not all of them. So we don't really need a tag system. No. Because there's estimated to be 2 million deer in Australia. Like, like, like we're not getting rid of them all. We need to pump like, those as, numbers as up. As much as I we mean... try. <laughs> What's that? I said we need to pump those numbers up. <laughs> <laughs> You need to pump down. You need to pump up the recreational hunting numbers. But what would be a good system is, yeah, like Victoria's system nationwide, we have people buy licenses um, and and have that directly go to preserving these areas. Like maybe revegetation um, processes have this, this money go to buying land so they can't be sold to developers. Yeah. Right. 100%. So it doesn't have to go to conservation in terms of this revegetation. It can just be, hey, we spent all this money buying your licenses to hunt this area. We got rid of all the deer. Now we've bought it. it you cannot sell it to some developer to put housing, to put a new Westfield, to put a new cinema, right? It's we conserved this location and we've bought it with our tags. Um what? What do you know about Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson acts in America? Uh, off the top of my head, I've mostly forgotten it because it's 10 o'clock, but I, I've watched, you know, um, uh, Steve Rinella's documentary where he goes into detail. I actually have a friend in the U.S. who is a hunter and she, is, she has a master's in biology um, and she works for the government uh, she does all the biology for this massive plot of land of government owned land like 10,000 acres or something like tens of thousands of acres um, where she does all the deer tags where she allocates the money that comes in from the Pittsman Robertson Act and, um, and allocates all that money so basically what that act is is like yeah the, the money from hunting equipment, hunting supplies hunting tags 
goes into blind lands, goes into um, preserving areas, goes into paying the people who do this sort of stuff as well and and all that. Yeah, there's a small tax on on all hunting, firearms, ammunition um, that goes back into conservation, whether it's funding studies, buying land, um, paying biologists to do the studies and all of that type of stuff. How, how do you reckon if we scrap like the GST on all hunting and fishing stuff in Australia, but did say half of what the GST is on a like a style of Pittman Robertson Dingle Johnson Act to cover the costs more so of what you're talking about and actually get hunters to put money where their mouth is in a direct. Yeah. So this is really interesting because just yesterday, New South Wales DPI or not DPI, whoever does the money stuff um, released a document outlining how much uh, hunters put into the New South Wales economy. Uh, Robert Borsak shared it, but I, I skimmed over it and hunting was actually the highest. Now, um, uh, uh, review was done in 2019 and 2020 showing how much hunters put into the national economy. And it's $2.4 billion. So let's say, let's just pretend all of that was retail sales. Yeah. So something that incurred GST, right? So what's 10% of $2.4 billion? You got it. I'm not. I'm not a mass type, mate. Uh, $240 million. Okay. So it's, that's not how it actually works. But let's say all of that, you know, $2.4 billion incurred a GST uh, incursion, right? $240 million instead of GST goes to conservation funds. Bro, we could buy so much land. Uh, we could buy so much land. We could... Buy land, fence it off, take out predators, cats, foxes, dogs. It was so good. Um, Because, like, look, not to go back to the people making a point about whataboutisms, it's like, yeah, land development is the biggest thing in Australia, right? So if we can buy the land, um, we can kill the deer, most of them. Let's not kill all of them, just to make you happy. But we can kill a lot of the deer, and we can stop it from being... um, bulldozed so look there's a point to that but if you start doing it for one industry then every industry is going to be like well what about mine etc um which i've thought about which we already have with the road excise uh, fuel excise tax right so when you buy fuel you get charged gst and then you get charged the fuel excise tax so this thing already exists for roads it can definitely exist for hunting Um, that's what i'm saying scrap the gst I would, yeah, I mean, I would love that. Hunt, um, every hunting other gear industry is already... just Whatever, I don't care about other industries, but yeah, like firearm sales, whose most genuine reasons are recreational hunting. Um, license sales, I'm pretty sure they incur GST. Uh, all of that, yeah, I, th- I think that would be good. Um so, yeah, we can definitely bring in some parts of the North American model. But the main part I have a problem with is, like, tags and um, and all that because 
that comes down to the carrying, like working out the carrying capacity of the land uh, of these animals. And when you're dealing with invasive species, it's the carrying capacity of the land um, for these species compared to the minimum viable population. And then you've got the um, most amount of an organism before, no, sorry, yeah, before a, uh, before damage incurs. And we know that one deer incurs damage. Yeah. Right? So so doing that will just mean this land can support zero deer. Yeah. I, I don't think um, when people are talking about the North American model wildlife, they're talking so much about the tag system. They're more talking about that Pittman-Robertson-Dingle-Johnson star where their money is going back into conservation you know, the Dingle Johnson's pretty much what the Pittman Robertson is, but for fishing. So, yeah. you know, you'd help do, you know, stocking programs more. Like another another state that's brilliant with stocking is Victoria. Um, yeah. You know, they stock all their waterways with their licensed sails, fix boat ramps, put in artificial reefs, all of that stuff, you know, where all these other states could learn a thing or two from. Yeah. Um, so it's remember like when like as far as I can tell, it's basically what happens with that license you buy when you when you get your deer hunting license yeah. from GMA. Um, Fishing license, it's, hunting license. Yeah, they they do all that. I don't think they go out to buy land to lock it away from developers, but um, I've read that they do fund revegetation stuff. That they do fund fixing parts of the forestry. Um, as well as paying their employees and, and all that as well. Um, but yeah, if we can add, if we can take away the GST from firearm sales and all that and have this fund, that would be sick. Um, most realistically, it'd be a tax on top of rather than replace GST because the federal government is going to be like, yeah, I want less money. <laughs> um, federal government is going to be like, I want more. So we have to include the GST plus the tax. Yeah, no, um, no you wouldn't want plus. You because hunting equipment. We wouldn't, but most realistically, it's what they would do. It's already so expensive. With like you compare what we pay, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Well, um, I still get soft discounts. So, <laughs> well, la di da. <laughs> um, so this has already ran into three and a bit hours of podcasting. It's been the, the longest HCP episode so far. Um, so we'll start wrapping it up, I reckon. Um, what else would you like to add to? Um, well, don't ask me that question because we'll go on for another three hours. <laughs> uh, I just... Man, I... Yeah, I... For anyone who's still listening, look... I can continue to talk about this for a very long time. Um, this is this has been my my the community I've been in for a very long time, like professionally, uh, more than ten years before I was even eighteen. I was working in the firearm and hunting industry, um, uh, and recreationally, obviously, been been hunting. And yeah, I went to university, incurred a hex debt and three and a half years of my life just because I, I like hunting so much and really wanted to make sure that 
we were doing the right thing and, and confirm that we're doing the right thing. Um, so it's more what I want to add, bro, we'll be here until tomorrow. <laughs> so if anyone has anything they want to talk to me about, just email Eureka, which well, don't email, just talk to Eureka Tactical. Um, I, maybe me, I don't, I try not to check my DMs when it's like a random, um, but you know, if, if you do want to know more, then read the articles I put out in Eureka Tactical. Go to the um, website. Try and find studies. Read the studies. Don't read some, you know, certain, certain councils' uh, interpretation of the studies. Look, understand that research itself isn't against you. Biologists aren't against you. Aren't they? We... We want every tool to be utilized. And then as someone who cares about the economy, I want recreational hunting to be the biggest tool utilized because then at least money is going into the economy rather than out of the economy. Um, and deer never going to be eradicated. So don't worry. We're still going to have some. You still going to have opportunities. Um, just try and think about the Australian environment. Yeah, 100% there. Um, yeah, slide into Dan's DMs if you want to get onto him about anything he said. <laughs> and yeah, then, if you're in Queensland and you have deer and you want someone to shoot them, um, I'm not a fan of paying thousands of dollars. So if you want to <laughs> have me on the, on the property. Somebody get I'll, Dan on know, some, some deer. I'll give you a discount. Land. <laughs> um, on a $24 shirt <laughs> for access to your property. No, just, um, so yeah, understand like science isn't against you. Research isn't against hunting. Um, it's, it's just certain people are using the research to justify mass culling. Um, I want to use research to justify more hunting. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that. You know, we have a lot of banter. We're joking about how you want to eradicate deer. I know you are you don't want to eradicate deer. You want the, what's best for the environment um, right. and the economy and recreational hunters. So there's a very, very fine line balance between those things. It's a super fine line, like a hair. <laughs> so, yeah, if you've enjoyed anything that Dan said, head over slide into his DMs, go check out the Eureka Tactical yeah, website. Um, check out the shirts that he's that they sell. Badass. I rock them yeah. weekly. Um, all this knowledge, like I said, I now have a hex debt. I incur that hex debt because I want to help the hunting community. <laughs> so I would not hate if you, if you learned something today. Um, look, I wouldn't hate it if you uh, bought some stuff from Eureka Tactical. Um, uh, I'm trying to support the hunting community as best as possible. And uh, I don't want to go back to work in security in the valley. And if, um, if you work for GMA, get Dan a freaking job. <laughs> also that. Um, yeah, um, if you own a property and you need a scientist, uh, looking for work. <laughs> I've just graduated. I need to pay off this debt, but... Ideally, through um, through 
providing services to the hunting community, providing a good message. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't hate it if uh, if you learned something today, if you just supported me back. Hopefully you did. And, uh, it was good fun. I've I've definitely learned learned a fair bit and looking at stuff in a different perspective. I can be as stubborn stubborn as a mule with some stuff as Dan's come to find out over the last few years of us talking about all of this shit back and forth back and forth um you know if you want to check out his stuff he does plenty of work for firearm owners united um he was a major pusher in the suppressor september that they did last year and a bunch of other things um the bow hunting ban in proposed bow hunting ban in south australia he wrote up all the letter stuff and put that out in the public as well um but yeah, he does lots of amazing work for hunters and shooters across across Australia. So, um, I do my best. Uh, I would suggest if you really want a good get a good view of my work, look at my submission for um, the National Feral Deer Action Plan. Yeah, definitely. He's plastered that all over the Facebook the last couple of days, but you might have to go back three four weeks. Um, is there any guests you'd recommend? Yeah, so someone you mentioned earlier is someone I talk to semi-frequently, um, another scientist, another biologist. His name's Forrest Galante. Um, over the past few years, we've just had a, a small relationship form, and he's a really cool dude. And he, he goes spearfishing. And I, I really like it when biologists and scientists are also in the hunting world, in the spearfishing world, etc. And I think I think he would have a very interesting perspective to give to you um, in terms of science and Definitely. science's role in, in taking animals. Um, so yeah, yeah, if you can reach out to Forrest Galante, uh, I honestly I think I think he would have a really fantastic uh, view. Yeah, definitely. And perspective on on this and on hunting in other parts of the world from someone who who spearfishes, from someone who is a scientist as well. Um, I think that'd be really really cool. Yeah, I definitely could see myself going down a few rabbit holes with him after hearing a few of his conversations and seeing all of his videos from his podcast. Um, What's yeah. what's his podcast called? Uh, uh, the Wild Times, Wild Times podcast. Yeah, and if you listen from start, like the first episode to now, you hear my name about a hundred times uh, being dropped. So no one likes bragging, mate. <laughs> I am extremely humble, as you have just realized yeah, over yeah, the past three and a half hours. Very, very. <laughs> I've, I've had a lot of fun. I hope you have no, too. No, I have. Man. Had a lot of fun. I have. I hope hope people stick around. It's a it's a longer podcast compared to what. Uh, they're used to hearing from me, you know. It's 11 p.m. here on Sunday, Sunday night. And Just for anyone who is still listening, there will be a discount code, HCP or capitals, of 15% off for uh, the first two weeks this podcast is out. That's a more of a discount than I give Zach. That's uh, it's pretty good. So if you've listened to this whole thing, you get a nice reward of 15% off our shirts and, and stuff. Get on it. I don't think I'm going to tag that in the uh, comments. No. So if you've made it this far, you get, you, Zach you'll get gets that. gets 13%. <laughs> so. uh, nah, I appreciate it, man. And I hope 
everyone learns a learns a bit and takes a bit away and yeah i'm keen to hear any rebuttals and see what you you guys plaster down with <laughs> yeah no. uh, i'm keen to see just hundreds of sales so i don't have to go back to work in security <laughs> no nah, easy man thank you very much for all the hard work that you do when um putting this podcast together and the feral feral deer action plan that you um put together and submitted oh well, thank yeah thanks for having this and i can see you're super tired so yeah let's I'm, wrap up. I'm up in about five hours so less than that yeah that's, <laughs> that's right, wrap up. easy thank you very much man have a good night see ya Thank you for listening to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. Please head over to our social media and give us a follow. Instagram at Hunting Connection Podcast, Facebook at Hunting Connection Podcast, Twitter at Hunting Connect, TikTok at Hunting Connection Podcast. If you've enjoyed, please share with your friends and family, tag us in your photos and videos on social media, subscribe, rate and review to help grow the podcast. If you're interested in giving additional support to the podcast you can head over to our podcast patreon page thank you very much for listening and catch you next episode